The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You check your hazmat suit three times to make sure it's airtight. One rip could be lethal. You've just taken two of the potassium iodide tablets you've saved for exactly this moment. Your face is clean shaven for the first time in half a decade. Your CM7M gas mask won't probably seal over a beard. Your gas filtration canister is locked in, good to go with the shelf life of another 10, 15 years. You don't really want to leave, but you can't stay underground any longer. You're dangerously close to running out of generator fuel. You have no more than a week's worth of vacuum-sealed dehydrated rations. For the last five years, you've lived over 30 feet underground, spending your days in an abandoned missile silo converted into a doomsday bunker a decade ago. Your family thought you were insane to buy it, living alone with no kids. You could have easily retired 15 or 20 years early or bought two homes outright with the money it took to build it. But you knew in your bones that the war was coming, a bad one, one unlike the world had ever seen. You told your only brother that he and his family could stay with you. The five of you could have lived for over two years easy in this place, but they never survived the initial blasts. You told him to get out of downtown, get away from the city. Don't move anywhere near a military base, but he didn't listen. Now he and his family are dead. There's a good chance everyone you ever knew is dead. Maybe even everyone you'd ever seen is now dead. There's a distinct possibility that you are literally the last person on earth. There were no more satellite transmissions 48 hours after the bombs hit. How many warheads was it? At least 70 obliterated the U.S. alone before radio transmissions went down roughly 72 hours after the first blast. Over 300 had landed worldwide. The initial blast took out entire cities. Lethal radiation eviscerated every living thing for miles and miles around the blast zone. And then who knows what the fuck happened next? They did it. They actually did it. World War III, Armageddon. You made it to your doomsday bunker within an hour of the first blast alone. You shut the hermetically sealed steel door before the radiation made it to the Montana-Canadian border. And that was the last time you saw the outside world. A family made it to the door the next day, but the radiation was too strong by that point to let, you know, uh, risk letting them inside. They didn't know it, but they were already dead. 
And now you're leaving the bunker, walking out into a world of death. For as far as you can see, there's literally nothing alive, not a single plant or animal or blade of grass. You think, am I dreaming? This doesn't even look like Earth. It looks like some other barren, horrible planet. Looks like you're stepping out of a spaceship and walking out into the surface of Mars. The MSV level on your radiation, uh, you know, reader reads uh, just over 6,000. Fuck, without your suit, you'd likely be dead within a few weeks from radiation poisoning. And it would be a horrible final few weeks. Your bones would disintegrate inside your body. Sores on your skin would open and bleed. Your hair would fall out in clumps. Your teeth would go soft and fall from your jaw. Your internal organs would basically turn to mush, diarrhea, vomiting, internal bleeding. Did you survive underground for years just to die alone and horribly now? You walk to a sealed above ground garage, hoping the ATV you bought for just this moment will actually start. You know you'll drive up north into Canada, away from any kind of population base, seeking lower radiation levels. But will you find those levels? Will you find anyone else alive? Will you find a safe haven where you can take off your suit without dying? Doesn't seem likely. It seems as if you've died already and gone to hell. Does this sound familiar? Kind of like the basic setup. Some kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, dystopian video game, graphic novel, movie, TV show. As a little kid in the mid and late 80s, when the Cold War was still very much alive, I remember worrying about atomic bombs launching from behind the Iron Curtain, flying across both the Atlantic and the Pacific, and just devastating the United States. I read Stephen King's A Stand when I was probably 10, and that book is a biological weapon that takes everyone out, but the dystopian concept is similar. Most of humanity is dead. I think a lot of people have imagined some sort of post-apocalyptic scenario like that. Prior to the end of World War II, before the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I imagine almost no one thought about that scenario. Certainly not an apocalypse brought on by atomic weapons. Prior to the war, it wasn't possible for us to destroy our entire planet with bombs. Now, that is the reality we live in. How scary is that? One wrong sequence of military actions and human life is over. This new terrifying reality started with today's subject, with the Manhattan Project. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist who would be put in charge of the Manhattan Project, the scientist tasked with designing the first atomic bomb, the man who had the title of Coordinator of Rapid Rupture, often known as the father of the atomic bomb, said this after watching his destructive creation explode for the first time in the desert of New Mexico. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Few events in history have changed the world more than the topic of this week's suck, the Manhattan Project. Time to go atomic on today's don't push that red button for fuck's sake edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I hope November's treating you right. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Bojangles ball polisher, Triple M's vocal coach, Nimrod's Oracle, Lucifina's, you know, pinup photographer. You're listening to Time Suck. Back from Columbus, Ohio, in the Suck Dungeon with the Time Suck crew. Harmony, Lindsay, Zach, Reverend Dr. H.C. Paisley. You know what that stands for. Gang's all here. Had a blast in Columbus. Both Saturday shows completely sold out in the big old room. And the other two shows weren't far off. And, and most importantly, they were all fun. So much fun. Thanks for the laughs. 
Thanks for some very nice words after the shows from many of you. And uh, and a few gifts as well. A few very cool gifts. Talking about that on a, on a secret suck there this week. Off to Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado this weekend, November 7th to the 9th. few of the shows already sold out. Tickets selling fast for the rest. Uh, not many tickets left for the live Anthill Kids Suck on the 10th Sunday as well. Uh, Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 21st to 23rd. Another live time suck on the 23rd. Tacoma Comedy Club. Uh, that's the last, uh, wait, Tacoma Comedy Club? I, man, I can't remember this moment if I'm doing a live suck at Tacoma. You have to look at the, that's, yeah, I am. I'm doing the last live time suck of the year on the, tw- uh, on the uh, in, in Tacoma, I believe. I believe. Fifth to the seventh there. And then uh, last stand-up shows of the year at the Spokane Comedy Club, December 26th through 20th. You can find it all at dancummins.tv. And I'll announce tour dates for 2020 soon. Got all, almost all of them locked down. Uh, going to work in a few cities I missed in 2019. Uh, the popular Salvita Lucifina uh, shirt back in stock in the Time Suck store. Hail Lucifina in Latin. Now it's back on a, in a women's cut. Also a few uh, colors in the, in the men's cut, a few different colors, and in a windbreaker option. It's very cool. I'm excited to get mine. It's got some additional access created to kind of occulty design features. And also given an, uh, to a new charity this month. Uh, more money this time, but went up a little bit more from last month, giving $3,500 this month in honor of Veterans Day to the Patriot Guard Riders on behalf of the, the Space Lizard Patreon contributions. Uh, the Patriot Guard Riders, they're a 100% volunteer 501c3 that started back in 2005 in response to former suck subject to Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, their mission is to ensure dignity and respect at memorial services, honoring fallen military heroes first responders, and honorably discharged veterans. So cool. Their main mission is to attend the funeral services of fallen American heroes as invited guests of the family. Each mission they undertake uh, has two basic objectives. Number one, show sincere respect for fallen heroes, their families, and their communities. Number two, shield the mourning family and their friends from interruptions created by fuckface protesters, you know, like the WBC. You can ride with them in the funeral procession or you can just help stand guard at the funeral itself it's all legal, all up and up. You know, they don't they do not uh, do any illegal confrontations. They just protect these people's families. You can be active military, veteran. You can be someone who's never served. To learn more, donate more yourself, you can go to www. Well, why do I say that anymore? It's like a leftover from 10 years ago in my brain. You can go to patriotguard.org. You don't need to put the fucking W's in there anymore. Uh, thanks to all the military meat sacks, by the way, also for your service. And thanks to the first responders as well for your brave service. Uh, link to all that in the episode description. Make it real easy. And that's it. Tried to clock through the announcements as fast as I uh, as fast as I could today. Get, get right into it. Got to get into a topic that I know a lot of you are expecting me to turn into a pronunciation disaster, but I've prepared. Just like some people, you know, prepare for the, the apocalypse, I've prepared for this apocalyptic time suck. And instead of, you know, having to say the, the word that is the bane of my existence, I get to push a button. Nuclear. Yeah! Yeah! Little loophole. Yeah! Yeah! Can't fuck it up today. Nuclear. Mm-hmm. Using technology to my advantage. Yep, talking about uh, nuclear weapons on today's nuclear show. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes maybe I'll push this button to remind to remind you of how I used to say it. Because of your many years as a nuclear technician, we're putting you on a nuclear sub. Nuclear. <laughs> it's pronounced nuclear. Oh, whatever. Nuclear. Thanks, Homer. Let's get to it. Excited to keep pushing that button today. Excited to learn about a real conspiracy. One with some meat on it. The Manhattan Project is perhaps the most successful and best documented conspiracy of all time. 
The Manhattan Project was the, was the code name for an American-led, multinational effort to develop a functional atomic weapon during World War II. And as you know, it was, it was very successful. Although I do feel strange calling a weapon, uh, you know, that killed upwards of, you know, 100,000 people uh, successful. But yes, but it was very successful. The U.S. government collected the best chemists, physicists, and engineers they could find, tasked them with the impossible, taking the universe's smallest particle, dividing it in half. From that fission, a previously unimaginable amount of energy could theoretically be harnessed for a variety of uses, including bombs that could kill the world. Why was the Manhattan Project started? Well, it was launched in response to the fear that Nazi scientists, a real fear based in reality, uh, were working on a weapon, you know, that, that could use nuclear technology since the 1930s and uh, that Adolf Hitler, a man who was obsessed with remaking the world and his horrific image, the image of the Nazi party's sick ideology, you know, that he was prepared to use it. And the U.S. was right again, yet to have those fears. Hitler did have scientists dedicated to building a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Luckily for the rest of the world, it wasn't given the same priority in Germany. It was abandoned, you know, uh, a, f- a few years into the war, and they never ended up, you know, getting the chance to drop the bombs first. Thank God. I mean, can you imagine that world where Hitler drops the first atomic bombs, drops maybe one on London, another one on Manchester, maybe one on Dublin? Drops one on Moscow, another one on St. Petersburg, is able to push into Russia in the winter. How would have that have changed things? I guess with that show, uh, there's that show on Amazon. It's all about that. Uh, the argument of whether or not the Manhattan Project was ethical, including the culmination of its actions at the end of the war, is something I'll discuss after the timeline. Got to get through a lot of, a lot of uh, development info first. Understand the, the project more fully before, you know, making what might be a, a kind of polarizing argument. Before discussing the argument of, you know, when it's a good decision to go nuclear, if it's ever good, we'll first take a close look at who most of the major players are who paved the road to making it possible to obliterate our planet. We'll also look at all the good nuclear technology, you know, uh, you know, has done for modern man. Check out the differences between um, nuclear weapons and even explain a touch of the science of, you know, what the hell a nuclear explosion is, at least as best I can. U.S. went heavy on nukes. 1942 to 1946, $2 billion was spent on the Manhattan Project, named for the Manhattan District, where the project's initial planning took place. That price tag would be about $30 billion in today's money. Some estimates illustrate that, you know, half a million people ended up being part of this project in one way or another. And that might not seem like a lot of money. When you think about how much the U.S. spends on military now, over $600 billion in the 2018 fiscal year. However, Current annual military spending accounts for less than 5% of our GDP, the total monetary value of all, you know, final goods and services produced and sold in the market. In 1945, over 40% of America's GDP was being spent on military efforts. The U.S. was spending every dollar it had and a lot of dollars it didn't, you know, selling tons of war bonds to cover the cost of war. Despite being stretched very thin, it still believed in the possibility of nuclear weapons, enough to dump billions into this one project out of many. One that if it didn't work in time would take billions away from other weapon programs that military leaders knew worked, tanks, soldiers, additional military aircrafts, ships, artillery, et cetera, and, and, and produce absolutely nothing. It was, uh, you know, that, 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 that binary game of either it works and it's exactly, you know, what we needed to stop the war or it doesn't work and it gives us absolutely nothing. Uh, to house all the science that would be need, that need to be scienced to make all this possible, three giant facilities, and sorry if my, uh, little pause today. I got a, I got a head cold, so I'm all metted up, but I cannot stop my, my sinuses from uh, doing what they're, what they're doing with whatever little virus I got. Um, and yeah, three giant facilities, all three basically brand new secret cities, 
would need to be developed to bring the impossible to reality before the fucking Nazis did that. A facility was created about 25 miles west of Knoxville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. That's now a city of 30,000 people. It did not exist before the Manhattan Project. It was a city built for the Manhattan Project. Second facility was built just a few hours from the Suck Dungeon. The Hanford facility, just outside of Richland, Washington. Richland along with Kennewick and Pasco uh, being part of the Tri-Cities. Home to the B-Reactor, the first full-scale plutonium production reactor in the world. The site covers an area half the size of the state of Rhode Island. 586 square miles. And I think it was built there because nobody wanted those acres because it's a shithole. I know I have fans near the Tri-Cities. I'm sure you guys are great, but oh, fuck. Why? Why do you live there? You live so close to so many really beautiful parts of the country. You're a couple hours drive from Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, Mount Rainier, the Cascades, the Oregon coast. And you live somewhere that is no more scenic than the northern Nevada desert. That's why they call it the dry shitties. The dry shitties. I've never heard that nickname for dry cities. The dry shitties. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And, and to be fair, when I say this stuff, I, I just don't like deserts. Apparently some people, some people love them. Some people want to be lizards and live in amongst the sagebrush and, the, and you know, just nothing. Teach their own, I guess. For me, give me some mountains, and some trees, or warm, sunny weather near a beautiful beach, or fucking count me out. Anyways, the third and the really main facility that would be the center of this project was built in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Additional work would be done elsewhere around the country, like Chicago, Illinois, where the world's first sustained nuclear reaction took place in Dayton, Ohio, where the polonium trigger for the bomb was designed. And, and there was a ton of other little labs and little bureaucratic centers sprinkled around the country. We talk about, you know, how, how ridiculous it was to play around with uh, nuclear reactions in the heavily populated Chicago area back in Suck 79 Chernobyl, if you want to hear more about that uh, specific little new, little experiment. <laughs> Machinery was also created at the Massachusetts Institute, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, on the East Coast and at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech on the West. And incredibly, the U.S. government was really good at keeping this gigantic project a secret. And that is why the conspiracy theorists love to point to the Manhattan Project to this day. You know, when the bombs were dropped in 1945, the public and the, and the Axis powers, they were shocked. How did the U.S. government keep such a massive project secret? I mean, a massive project employing a lot of people with huge, you know, uh, you know big, these three big facilities plus all these other little labs. Well, for starters, it's pretty incredible how they did it. For starters, only men were allowed to work on the project and their families were given the cover story that they had been drafted and sent overseas. That's pretty smart. No one working on the project was allowed to go home at all until the war was over. Also, to strongly encourage secrecy, recently leaked CIA documents revealed that death row inmates were dressed up. This is pretty intense. Dressed up as if they were Manhattan Project workers. And instead of being given a lethal injection or put in the electric chair, they were brought out in front of like these giant orientation groups when the project started, when the three bases had just been, you know, completed. And the scientists and other workers, you know, gathered around, told that these men had been caught leaking classified information, leaking secret information about the project. And then they were executed by firing squad for treason in front of the other men. That will make you think twice about talking. Oh my heck. Uh, four years into the project, 1943, when it became more important than ever to maintain secrecy because leaking the scientific and technological discoveries they'd made up until that point would be devastating. Actor Humphrey Bogart, at the height of his fame, put on the greatest acting job of his career to help keep the Manhattan Project a secret. This is, a, this is a, a role he would never be given credit for, never be recognized for in life. He flew to each of the three main facilities, played out the same death scene, super dramatic. Military police dragged him out in front of assembled workers at each plant. 
The workers were told that he'd gotten a hold of some sensitive Manhattan Project info, possibly from someone inside that plant. He refused to give up the worker's name. You know, he was, he was called a Nazi sympathizer. The Pentagon needed to make an example of him. Not even a huge star was exempt from being punished and punished swiftly for being a traitor. He was fake executed by the base commander at each location, seemingly shot in the head with a pistol while on his knees begging for his life. It said that at Hanford, you know, the, uh, you know, the dry shitties, the tri cities, he ad-libbed right before he was fake shot saying, here's wishing I would have kept my mouth shut, kid. And then just bam. And then the commander told the rest of the workers, if I don't have a problem, put down the greatest actor this nation's ever seen. And frankly, one of my heroes, how much of a problem do you really think I'd have killing one of you worthless fucks? You talk about this project to anyone. You talk about this project to your fucking son. I'll kill you and your entire fucking family. I'll eat your children. Hail Satan. Does anyone still believe that? Does anyone still believe that, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart fucking did any of that? Anyone at all? Please, please, at least one person. No, that's all. That was all nonsense. That was, uh, but God, I hope someone was like, Jesus Christ. Fucking, they started killing people for him. Humphrey Bogart was part of No, uh, here's a, a secret for real. A lot of good planning. A lot of good planning. Each of the three base locations were chosen in part because of their geographic isolation. Also, each location heavily guarded. Uh, one had to pass multiple security checkpoints to get into each base. Everyone who worked on the project in any way, sorry, that, that amuse, I amuse myself with that if no one else. I just keep thinking about Humphrey Bogart, just like how dramatic that would be if you saw that for real. Um, everyone who worked on the project had to pass rigorous FBI background checks. You know, they would take weeks to complete. They would like call, you know, family, friends, previous employers, you know, do lots of digging into their backgrounds. So there was that. Uh, and then there was constant reminders posted all around the bases regarding loose talk, losing the war, reminding everyone of the penalties of treason. You know, they did try to like make that, you know, very abundantly clear. You're going to get in a lot of trouble if you talk. Uh, it's going to help us, you know, lose the war. Uh, and then and then people weren't told exactly why they were there either. Like construction uh, crews weren't told what they were building at these facilities. Cleaning crews weren't told, you know, what they were cleaning. You know, different uh, nuclear components were built in different places. And those places didn't talk to one another. They weren't, they weren't, they didn't know who else was even working on stuff. It was all compartmentalized. Very, very, very few people knew that the end goal of all these little moving parts was to build atomic bombs. Only one man, only literally one guy knew what the fuck was going on with the project in its entirety, like knew everything about it. That was General Leslie R. Groves, the one man who oversaw it all. Groves created separate organizations to carry out intelligence, counterintelligence, surveillance programs domestically and overseas. He, uh, these, these all operated outside of regular military channels, kept separate records reported uh, directly to him and only to him. Congressional leaders agreed to secret budget processes with no legislative oversight. The White House knew what the overall mission goal was, but they weren't privy to any of the details. You know, pretty genius. Uh, Joseph Stalin and his vast network of Soviet spies, they did figure it out. Uh, they figured out what Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam was up to before the bomb was dropped. But luckily that was when Russia was on the same team, at least, at least for the war effort. You know, better them find out than the Germans. Man, fucking Russia and their spies. They'd had such a vast network of spies. Learned about that back in Suck 138. Good old KGB. And all of the uh, communist Russia's other secret police and spy organizations. A lot of acronyms. A lot of different acronyms. Also, outside of General Leslie R. Groves and the Russians, some of the top atomic scientists might not have known all the organizational details about the project, but they certainly knew what they were doing. I mean, they had to know. They were the only minds capable of doing it. Uh, one of these mines, one of the most important Manhattan, Manhattan Project mines was Leo Szilard. Leo Szilard was born Leo Spitz on February 11th, 1898 in Budapest, Hungary. 
He developed an interest in physics at age 13, attended public school prior to being drafted into the Austro-Hungarian Army in 1917. During World War I, he attended officer's training school, never saw active duty due to influenza, eventually left Hungary for Berlin in 1919. And how crazy is that, by the way, that he never saw active duty during, during, uh, due to the flu? Again, that just kind of speaks to the importance of vaccinations in modern medicine. The flu used to take people out so hard they couldn't fight in a war. You know, if they didn't die. In Berlin, Szilard studied engineering at the Institute of Technology. 1921, he enrolled at the University of Berlin to study physics under Max von Lau. Szilard earned his PhD in August of 1922, completed his postdoctoral work at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin. During his stay at the Institute, he became close friends with another super nerd, smart guy, one we sucked before, Albert Einstein. Genius, cousin lover, sweet stash owner, guy who hated combs and brushes. In 1933, Szilard developed the idea of the nuclear chain reaction. He crunched some numbers. He carried the one so many times. He got calluses from holding so much chalk, ruined a couple of his wife's favorite shirts on some chalkboards. And he realized that, you know, a, a nuclear nuclear you know, weapon could be, you know, created to create unthinkable, uh, you know, amounts of devastation. And after Hitler took power in 1933, Szilard, who was Jewish, he got the fuck out of Germany, moved to England. There, he worked, at a re- worked as a research physicist at the Clarendon Laboratory, probably laughing way too hard at nerdy math jokes like, how many mathematicians does it take to change a light bulb? One, she gives it to three physicists, thus reducing it to a problem that has already been solved before. Because <laughs> physicists are so smart. Anyway, after arriving in England, Szilard had the brilliant idea of parenting this little atomic bomb idea he had rolling around his big old egghead. Or patenting it, excuse me, not parenting it. Why would, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Not so that he could make one. He didn't want to. He didn't want to make uh, one of these bombs. He wanted to keep someone else, like you know, mostly Hitler, from being able to make it. In 1936, he turned his patent over to the English government to have it classified under British secrecy laws. Not totally sure how that would have helped hide it. It, it must have. It wasn't real clear in the research. When I first read about that, I thought he meant that he just wanted to like patent it. So no one could like legally rip off his work as, as if Hitler, as if the Fuhrer of the Nazi party would get a hold of this formula to make an atomic bomb, but then not use it because he didn't legally have the patent. Nine, nine, we cannot use the patent because the, we do not own the rights. Ah, I'm so angry. The Fuhrer is furious. I don't know who that was. I don't know what accent that was. One, once World War II started, Szilard led an effort to keep any, you know, kind of a... a Nuclear information for being published in public. These concerns also prompted him with the assistance of two high-level theoretical theoretical physicists, Eugene Wigner, a future Nobel Prize winner, and one of the future fathers of the bomb, Edward Teller, to contact Albert Einstein. After sharing his fears with Einstein and obtaining his consent, Szilard drafted a letter that Einstein signed. This now famous Einstein letter was subsequently delivered by famed economist and banker Alexander Sachs to President FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt in October of 1939. And this letter outlined the possibility of achieving a nuclear chain reaction and its implications for the development of, you know, atomic weapons for national defense. It also requested government support to conduct large-scale experiments to prove whether or not a sustained nuclear chain reaction was even possible. This letter would change the course of the war. And it gave FDR the world's first nuclear boner. The seed for the Manhattan Project had been planted in his mind. 1940, 
Szilard became an American citizen, moved to New York. He began working at Columbia University, where he collaborated with other mega geniuses like American physicist Enrico Fermi, Walter Zinn, and Humphrey Bogart. Here's looking at you, uranium. No, not Bogart. Herbert Anderson. He collaborated with Herbert Anderson. At Columbia Szilard, I keep wanting to call him Sizzler because the way his name is spelled. It's a S-Z. Oh, the old Sizzler. Old Sizzler submitted his you know, breakthrough manuscript titled Evergent Chain Reactions in a System of Com- Composed of Uranium and Carbon in February of 1940. These actions by uh, Sizzler would lead to the creation of the brain power behind the Manhattan Project, the Uranium Committee. President FDR responded to the call for government support of uranium research quickly but cautiously. He appointed a brilliant engineer, physicist, and administrator named Lyman J. Briggs, director of the National Bureau of Standards, to be the head of the advisory committee on uranium or the Uranium Committee, which met for the first time on October 21st, 1939. And then, you know, working with uranium is what led to the atomic bombs. The committee started with including both civilian and military representation, was to coordinate its activities with Alexander Sachs, dude who delivered that Einstein letter, look into the current state of research on uranium to recommend an appropriate role for the federal government. In early 1940, only months after the outbreak of war in Europe, the Uranium Committee recommended that the government fund limited research on isotope separation, as well as Enrico Fermi's and Leo Szilard's work on fission chain reactions at Columbia University. And FGR was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, we got to work on isotopes and uh, whatnot. So you got to work on the chains and stuff and reactions and things, you know? I was going to bring that up if you guys didn't. No, because I understand what all that is. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I did okay at math. Uh, what is an isotope exactly? Well, it's an atom that has a different number of neutrons. That is a greater or, or lesser atomic mass than the standard for that particular element. If you need more info than that, well, good luck. Look it up. I'm not going to give it to you here. Seriously, I'm gonna, a tiny bit more, but not much more because it's complicated. I looked into it and the explanation is full of words that require further definitions, full of more science words that require further definitions. And those words need more definitions and so on. <laughs> and I'm not, uh, I don't want to let this suck unravel into, you know, three hours of details that will put 99% of you to sleep. I, I doubt most of you would enjoy that. So just know that isotopes are low atom guys, low atom guys and low atom gals. That these nerds knew were important to making a nuclear bomb. And they wanted to get their little nerd paws on the right nuclear isotopes. The uranium committee has concluded that enriched samples, or they concluded that enriched samples of uranium-235 were necessary for further research. And that the isotope might serve as a fuel source for an explosive device. Finding the most effective method of isotope separation was given high priority. The uranium committee would morph into different committees like the S-1 executive committee. You'd have members like physicist Arthur Compton, Nobel laureate, who would be chairman, uh, Ernest O. Lawrence, also Nobel laureate, Harold Ray, another Nobel Prize winner, plus other genius-level physicists like John C. Slater, John H. Van Fleck, famed chemist William D. Coolidge, an army of sorts, some of the brightest, most giantest brains in America. Now for a tiny bit of science before we get into the people and dates and events, here's what the Uranium Committee was trying to do with uranium. They were trying to shove it in their own asses. No. The uranium atom, they figured out how to do that right away. But they were like, that's not healthy. That, that doesn't accomplish anything. The uranium atom is the heaviest atom present in the natural environment. It's a rare chemical element found in, Earth's, in the Earth's crust. And there are two naturally occurring isotopes to choose from with uranium. There's uranium-238. This is the most plentiful. 99% of the Earth's natural occurring uranium is uranium-238. 
It's found in rock. You can mine uranium ore in a variety of ways, including open pit mining, tunnel mining. Most of the world's uranium mines are in Canada, Australia, uh, Niger, Kazakhstan, Russia, uh, Namibia. This type of uranium is not the kind you want for like big boom, boom, naughty pants, face melter bumps. The other isotope, uranium-235, a lot harder to find. Mining companies use Geiger counters, other tools to find this much more radioactive version of this element. And when a neutron is fired at this isotope at extremely high speeds, uranium-235 becomes very unstable. It gets a little cray-cray. And it becomes a fissionable isotope called uranium-236 that can be used for big boom-booms. Also, the less radioactive uranium-238, while not fissionable, can be manipulated into five types of very fissionable man-made plutonium. How? Fuck if I know. Maybe once the scientists stand around a lab, you know, uh, table full of uranium-238 and just yell at it. Just come, come on, change already, you stupid little uranium shit. Turn into plutonium, you dummy. You gotta get fissionable. And then maybe they take off their belts and just kind of whip it. Just, come on, gosh dang. You know, kick it around the, the room after it falls off the table. I don't know. Anyway, this, this uranium committee nerds, these guys had to figure out how to enrich common uranium into more radioactive derivatives to make things fissionable. They had to figure out how much of the unstable uranium-236 isotope they would need to reach critical mass, aka boom-boom time, how fast a neutron had to be fired to, to trigger the desired reaction. What was the d- desired reaction? Well, that's called fission. Nuclear fission occurs when the nuclei of certain isotopes of very heavy elements like uranium and plutonium capture neutrons. What's that mean? It means they, they, they get them, they get their little, little hands on them. And they're just like, fucking come here, you stupid little neutron. I got hold of you, got captured the shit out of you. No. Nuclei of these isotopes, they're just barely stable. The addition of a small amount of energy to one by an outside neutron will cause it to promptly split into two roughly equal pieces. And that, and that will release a great deal of energy in several new neutrons. Pretty fascinating. If on average, one neutron from each fission is captured and successfully produces fission, then a self-sustaining chain reaction is produced. If on average, more than one neutron from each fission triggers another fission, then the number of neutrons, the rate of energy production will increase exponentially with time. Basically, one little boom causes many other little booms, which make an instant massive boom boom. And all of that boom comes from splitting teeny tiny little things, far too, be small, far too small to be seen with the naked eye. Like how wild is that really? That these tiny, tiny little atomic particles Things, things you, you can't see without, you know, technology we have now, technology that didn't even exist until less than a century ago could make this huge explosion. Like prior to the invention of the transmission electron microscope in 1933, you couldn't really prove these things even existed. It's all theoretical. Scientists mathematically were confident they existed, but still. And now bombs, unlike anything the world had ever seen before, like so much more powerful, uh, you know, are, are developed from this. Makes me wonder, will we ever find anything smaller than the atom? Well. We already have. Thanks to the space scissors picking this topic, now I know about quarks. Subatomic particles discovered mathematically in the 1970s. Little building blocks of atoms. Is there anything smaller than a quark? Yes, at least theoretically. Prions. Prions, little theoretical particles thought to be inside of quarks. And then even smaller than that are nanners, teeny tiny sexy little fruits that make up prions. And of course I made the nanner part up. But seriously, how crazy is it to think that we could you know, uh, I mean, really kind of theoretically, I don't know if scientists would agree with this, but this is where my mind goes, uh, infinitely keep exploring inward, like infinitely keep getting smaller. That's some serious alpha and omega shit where the universe is endlessly big. You can't make it to the end of space and the universe is endlessly small. You can't get to the smallest particle. My brain is fucking melting. 
I'm having a n- nuclear brain meltdown. What else am I gonna? What else are we gonna find? You know, what's gonna be the next game changer? And nobody knew that we we're gonna find these little atomic particles that make these huge bombs. What's the next thing? I love that we don't know what answers we don't have. It makes life a little bit more magical, a little more exciting. So, last bit of science that leads to the boom, boom, bad fire, and we'll really get into the people and the dates. Uh, two conditions must be met before fission can be used to create powerful explosions. Condition number one: they gotta be cool. They gotta be. You gotta, they gotta be like nice. You gotta look at like nice little. No. Number one is the number of neutrons lost to fission from non-fission producing neutron captures or or escape from the fissionable mass must be kept low. Number two, the speed with which the chain reaction proceeds must be very fast. A fission bomb is a race within itself to successfully fission most of the material in the bomb before it blows itself apart. The degree to which a bomb uh, design succeeds in in this race determines its efficiency. A poorly designed or malfunctioning bomb may fizzle and release only a tiny fraction of its atomic potential energy and a really well-designed bomb can unleash hell on earth. To illustrate the true magnitude of a nuclear explosion, let's take a peek at conventional bombs. A conventional explosion can be caused by things like, oh, this is a tricky one, trinitrotoluene, trinitrotoluene, TNT. Uh, Other explosive materials like ammonium nitrate. These explosions blast super pressurized air faster than the speed of sound, hence the boom, and create what is called a blast wind. The explosion can include fire, other elements, and can blow pretty substantial craters and mountains and shit. But now let's talk about a nuclear explosion. Way more powerful than other explosives. One kilogram of nuclear fission fuel can release energy 20 million times more than one kilogram of TNT. 20 million times more powerful. Fuck putting craters in mountains. It could potentially obliterate, just eviscerate a fucking mountain. The most powerful non-nuclear bomb that I'm aware of is Russia's ATBIP, sometimes called the father of all bombs. It has the destructive power equivalent to roughly 88,000 pounds of TNT. It weighs over 15,000 pounds itself. Its blast radius is 300 meters. It was first produced in 2007. But the most powerful nuclear weapon, oh, on October 30th, 1961, the USSR detonated the largest nuclear weapon ever tested and created the biggest man-made explosion in history. The blast, 3,000 times as strong as the bomb used in Hiroshima, broke windows 560 miles away from the blast site. How fucking crazy is that? Like, if you're good at geography, that's like dropping a bomb where I live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And having windows be blown out from the bomb in the Space Needle in downtown Seattle. The flash of light from the blast was visible up to 620 miles away. Uh, The Tsar Bomba, as the test ultimately became known as, uh, had a yield between 50 and 58 megatons, twice the size of the second largest nuclear blast. It created a fireball and a blast radius estimated to be 6.4 square miles large thought it would be able to give humans third-degree burns within 4,080 square miles of the bomb's epicenter. A bomb this size would completely just fucking erase a quarter of Manhattan, like turn skyscrapers into little piles of melted rubble. The rest, people would, they would just be ash. Their skeletons wouldn't even fucking exist anymore. The rest of the city would also be dead, killed in a blast wave or burned to death. And that was back in 1961. Right, that was that was a long time ago that you know this this particular bomb was developed. 
more on the power of, you know, modern atomic weapons at the end of the suck. Okay, now that we met the committee, who would start the Manhattan Project and tried to wrap our minds around, you know, what they were trying to do, how much destruction potential they unleashed upon Earth, let's meet the two men who would lead the Manhattan Project, Army Corps of Engineers Officer General Leslie Groves, physicist Robert Oppenheimer. In September 1942, General Leslie Groves was appointed to head the Manhattan Project with the rank of Temporary Brigadier General. He would be tasked with bringing together all the right people from all the different fields, making sure that they got what they needed. General Groves was a high-level Army engineer with a brilliant career prior to the Manhattan Project. He was appointed to lead uh, the Manhattan Project. I guess he was kind of disappointed when he first got the job because he wanted to oversee actual combat overseas. He was born August 17th, 1896 in Albany, New York. And I'm guessing he developed a thick skin early in his childhood because of his name. It's like the Johnny Cash song, Boy Named Sue. He was a boy named Leslie. Not, not as easy as a path through grammar school as a boy named Charlie or a boy named Archie. In 1916, after three years of studying at the University of Washington and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Groves fulfilled his ambition to enter the United States Military Academy at West Point. He graduated fourth in his class in 1918. No dummy. I'm pretty sure graduating fourth in your class at West Point is the equivalent to being, you know, the smartest person to ever graduate from like Phoenix Online or something. Uh, during the 1920s, Groves, amongst other things, opened the channel at Port Isabel, Texas, supervised dredging operations in Galveston Bay, assisted in Vermont during the 1927 New England flood. In 1931, following an earthquake in Nicaragua, Groves took over responsibility for the capital city of Managua's water supply, and he was awarded the Nicaraguan Presidential Medal of Merit for keeping the populace hydrated. In August 1941, Groves was given responsibility for overseeing the construction of a little bed and breakfast type place you may have heard of, fucking Pentagon. Five-story, five-sided structure was 5.1 million square feet, making it at the time the largest office building in the entire world, almost twice the square footage of the Empire State Building. Groundbreaking for the Pentagon was held on September 11th, 1941, 60 years to the day before the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a fact known to many an Illuminati believer. Because of pressing needs brought on by World War II, people started working in the Pentagon before it was even completed. The building was formally completed on January 15, 1943, after approximately 16 months of construction, at a total cost of $83 million, well over a billion dollars in today's money. And after overseeing the Pentagon's inception, Groves' next project was the Manhattan Project. And one of his first choices was to appoint theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, Bob Bobenheimer, Bobenheimer as director for Los Alamos Laboratory, responsible for the research and design of the first atomic bombs. Oppenheimer was a genius and also a controversial choice since many of his family members were confirmed communists and his previous leadership had only been overseen about 15 researchers. But Groves knew that Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer was the nerd he needed, the one nerd to lead them all. So he kidnapped him, forced him to live in a laboratory basement where he successfully completed, you know, he had to successfully complete five uh, equations every morning before he got a cold biscuit. Another two for a glass of water. One equation every time he needed to go to the bathroom. If he didn't get at least 15 equations cranked out every single day, he got the motherfucking whip. No, he was hired like a normal person. Uh, Groves and Oppenheimer made a winning team. Groves got Oppenheimer anything he needed for scientific pursuits and Oppenheimer gave Groves consistent results. Oppenheimer was born April 22nd, 1904. By the age of 10, he was studying minerals, physics, and chemistry. He didn't choose to be a nerd. He was born a nerd. His correspondence with the New York Mineralogical Club was so advanced that the society invited him to deliver a lecture, not realizing he was a 12-year-old boy. You know, his childhood reminds me a lot of, a lot of my own childhood in the sense that he was once a young boy and I was once a young boy. 
And he liked rocks and I like rocks. You know, and that's, that's about where the comparison ends. Uh, Oppenheimer enrolled at Harvard in September of 1922, graduated in three years, excelling in a wide variety of subjects. Although he majored in chemistry, Oppenheimer eventually realized his true passion was the study of physics. 1925, he began his graduate work at, in physics at Cavendish Laboratories in Cambridge, England. At Cavendish, Oppenheimer realized that his talent was for theoretical, not experimental physics. I remember when I had to make that choice. I was like, man, I'm so good at like, you know, theoretical physics and experimental physics. Gosh, where's my heart? You know, I don't know what either one of those things is. Uh, he got accepted. He, uh, he got an accepted. He got an invitation from back Max Born, director of the Institute of Theoretical Physics at the University of uh, Gottingen to study with him in Germany. How insane is this? When you really think about it, to be that fucking smart. Like you're so smart that some director in another country of some theoretical physics is like, hey, do you want to move to Germany to help us with all these numbers? We got a lot of numbers. I mean, I've been trying to crunch them. It's so hard. I've been, trying, I've been trying to crunch them in a way that no human being has ever crunched these sons of bitches before. And my colleagues are some of the smartest nerds who've ever lived. And we were thinking that you might be a smarter nerd. That is just bananas to me, to be that exceptional at something, to be that gifted, to push your mind past where any human mind has gone before. Oppenheimer had the good fortune to be in Europe during a pivotal time in the world of physics, as European physicists were then developing the groundbreaking theory of quantum mechanics. I, I get it. I know. I can say those two words. Oppenheimer received his doctorate, 1927, accepted professorships at the University of California, Berkeley, and the California Institute of Technology. Everyone is all up swinging on his nerd jock. At Berkeley, he became good friends with Ernest Lawrence, one of the world's top experimental physicists, the inventor of the cyclotron, some type of particle accelerator whose, whose use would be instrumental in the success of the Manhattan Project. Okay, now in enough context. Whew, heek. My goodness, got to take a little sip. That was a lot of big words. <laughs> Boy, my heck. Now let's dig into the year-by-year development of scientists, almost ensuring our world's future nuclear destruction in today's time suck timeline uh, right after a word from today's, you know, first sponsor. Today's time suck is brought to you by Anton Satanic Big Top Burlesque Strip Show. <laughs> Get on down to downtown this weekend and sneak under the Big Top to see those tops drop with Anton Satanic Big Top Burlesque Strip Show. This Saturday at midnight, we're giving away $1,000 to the Lucifina-inspired lady who puts on the best show. Show starts at 8 p.m. See if you can defeat last year's champion, Cotton Candy. Will she stick to the grand prize again this weekend? <laughs> well, packed house, beautiful girls, and a star-studded lineup with celebrity judges, starting with Andre Chikatilo. What is big deal? I just want to stop. I mean, see some hotatas. If I jerk sauce streamcock, you know you have votes. Also, Albert Fish, showbiz. The dancer and stripping, strutting, spanking, squishing that peanut butt all over my face. That's the cat's meow. That's how they do it, Antons. Steph Cox, Scurvy! If your daddy abandoned you at birth and you spent a lot of time growing up at black masses, you might be a satanic stripper. Bell Gunn is also going to be there. Hangy bangy, oofta, oofta, oofta. Working the polar, making it rain, putting the stiffy whiffy in the thingy dingies. See you there, goblins and ghouls. <laughs> and of course, that's not today's real sponsor. Uh, that also is, is way hard to explain if you're a new listener. Uh, we have a real sponsor. Today's Time Suck is sponsored by Felix Gray. 
Did you know that the average American blasts their eyes with bright screens for 11 hours every day? I want to say there's no way that's true. But then I was thinking, I, I think I spend more than 11 hours a day looking at the screen. I'm looking at my notes on a big LCD screen right now. I do that every day or every show, all show. I'm on my laptop eight hours plus a day working on podcasts, research, answering emails, checking on what's going on in the news, on my phone for Instagram or watching shows on it while I'm flying all the time on a screen. You can't stop looking at screens when our world is digital, but you can protect your eyes with a pair of Felix Gray blue light filtering glasses available with or without a prescription. Felix Gray glasses filter out 90% of high energy blue light, eliminate the glare coming off those screens so you can live your life without tired, dry eyes, blurry vision, or headaches. Unlike other blue light filtering glasses, Felix Gray uses proprietary blue light technology embedded into the lenses so there's no coating on them. And Felix Grays look great. When I, when I need to do a lot of reading, I put on my prescription clear frame Felix Gray Faradays. I, I love them. I feel like I look cool, get a lot of compliments. If you're going to wear glasses, wear cool ones. And Felix Gray frames really are also affordable, which is fantastic. Don't go another day. Look at the screens without the help of some Felix Grays. Go to felixgrayglasses.com slash timesuck for free shipping, 30 days of risk-free returns or exchanges. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash timesuck, meet sacks. Link in the episode description and on the Time Suck app. Timeline right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. The Manhattan Project began because of the theoretical physics of a few Germans in the 1930s. Their discoveries built on the backs of research completed decades earlier. We touched on some of the following info in Suck 79, Chernobyl, and Suck 67, Cousin Fucker, I mean Einstein, pass it on. On November 8th, 1895, a German physicist named Wilhelm Konrad Röntgen uh, discovered x-rays and got this snowball rolling. Fucking Germans. They started World War I. They started World War II. They got the ball rolling towards mutually assured, you know, nuclear destruction. When in doubt, blame Germany. That's the main takeaway from this, from this episode. You know, you didn't get that promotion. You know, you know, you know, you deserved. Well, fucking Germans. Your joints hurt when it gets cold. It's not arthritis. It's Germans. Did you know that when my wife, Lindsay, is mostly Polish, she's also a little bit German? Quite a bit German, actually. Of course she is. She's an evil savage. You know it, and I know it. She's also a very cute evil savage that I love, so I'm keeping her. And by evil, I mean sweet. And by savage, I, I mean savage. In 1896, French physicist Henri uh, Becquerel discovers radioactivity. Okay, good. France's fault, too. Between Napoleon and Henri I knew there was a lot I didn't like about the French. In 1898, Marie and Pierre Curie discovered polonium and radium. If you recall from the Chernobyl suck, Marie Curie, while she later became a citizen of France, was actually born and raised in Poland. Of course, the, the Poles are responsible in some way for nuclear weapons. 1911, Ernest Rutherford, New Zealand-born British physicist, father of, of uh, <laughs> nuclear physics, uh, articulates his model of the atom. And his conclusions, in the center of the atom exists a nucleus containing the majority of the atom's mass and all of its positive charge. Fucking Kiwi, Germany, France, Poland, New Zealand. Those monsters started this mess. Feels good to know that the U.S. had nothing to do with it. You know, the, the bombs getting dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, really, really not the U.S. It was really the other countries I just mentioned. And if you're a new listener, of course I'm kidding. I'm not as much of a lunatic as I pretend to be, I don't think. On December 28th, 1931, Irene Juliette Curie, French scientist, daughter of Marie and Pierre Curie, reports studying penetrating particles produced by beryllium uh, or beryllium when bombarded by alpha rays. She believes the particles, which are actually neutrons, to be energetic gamma rays. 
In May of 1932, British physicist James Chadwick officially discovers the neutron. On September 12, 1933, our buddy Leo Szilard conceives the idea of using a chain reaction of neutron collisions with atomic nuclei to release energy. He also considers the possibility of using this to make bombs. Mid-January 1934, Irene Joliet Curie and her husband, fellow French physicist Frederick, I think it's Joliot, maybe, conduct the first demonstration of artificial radioactivity. They would be jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1935 for the discovery of artificial radioactivity, radioactive manipulation essential to building the big bombs. In May of 1934, Enrico Fermi, the Italian-American physicist, who would later be called the architect of the nuclear age, and his team in Rome bombard elements with neutrons and split uranium, but don't realize it. The Italians also behind all of this. And they like it. Nuclear. The bombs. It's like a nuclear bomber. On July 4th, 1934, Szilard pulls that sweet move where he files a patent application describing the use of neutron-induced chain reactions to create explosions and the concept of critical mass. In December of 35, James Chadwick wins the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovery of the neutron. December 1st, 1938, Otto Hahn, a German chemist who is called the father of the nuclear or of, you know, chemistry, submits a paper conclusively showing the production of radioactive barium for neutron irradiated uranium. All this high level stuff. December 24th, 1938, Otto Frisch, an Austrian born British physicist and his aunt, Liz Metner, correctly interpret Otto Hahn's results as evidence that uranium nucleus Uh, that the uranium nucleus had been split in two. Fission had been accomplished. Pandora's most destructive box had been opened. On January 26, 1939, Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1922, publicly announces the discovery of fission at an annual theoretical theoretical physics conference at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., on January 29th, 1939, Robert Oppenheimer hears about the discovery of fission within a few minutes. It comes so hard, you guys. Uh, I mean, within a few minutes, he realizes that excess neutrons must be emitted and it might be possible to build a bomb. So he's responsible. Duh. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe it's kind of America's fault we have these bombs. On, on April 22nd, 1939, Frederick Joliot uh, and, and his group published their work on the secondary neutrons released in nuclear... Ah, dang it! Too many times I forgot to hit the button. I think I think I might have done it right. Um, uh, in uh, nuclear fission, nuclear. Maybe I just say it like that all the time. Released in nuclear fission. This demonstrates that a chain reaction is indeed possible. Big bombs possible. Very big bombs. On August second, nineteen thirty-nine, President Roosevelt receives the Einstein letter I mentioned earlier, written by Szilard, warning about the prospect of an atomic bomb. He starts thinking about the implications of developing atomic weapons. Then he changes his mind. You know, he decides not to pursue it. Then, former suck subject, Eleanor Roosevelt, punches him in the fucking face and screams, you're embarrassing me, Franklin! Stop being a pussy! Just because your legs don't work right doesn't mean your balls can't work right. Bomb those motherfuckers! It's the only way. If you're not going to use them, I'm going to get a steak knife. I'm going to come back here and cut your goddamn weak-willed balls out from under your goddamn lady dick. Sorry. I know that was intense, but you know, history, it is what it is. And that's what she said. And if you don't believe me, well, look it up, okay? Look it up. Look it up, and you'll never find it, because, yeah, you're right. She, never, she didn't say that. Okay. All right. You happy now? August 31st, 1939, Niels Bohr, American theoretical physicist John A. Wheeler, published a theoretical analysis of fission. Their theory implies that uranium-235 is more fissile than U-238, and that the isotope of the undiscovered element's 94 plutonium 
with 239 <laughs> nucleons is also very uh, fizzle. The implications towards atomic weapon creation are not immediately recognized, but they soon will be. While this is going on, bad things are happening in Europe. Captain Naughty Pants Mustache Monster making some dirty power moves. On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland, which marks the beginning of World War II. So it's kind of Poland's fault that all this happened. On August, uh, October 21st, 1939, first meeting of the Advisory Committee, Committee on Uranium in Washington, D.C., which, as we discussed, was created at President Roosevelt's order. They're meeting up. Physicists argue for urgent government attention, but there's a little bit of pushback. Right? People can't understand what the fuck these nerds are talking about. Edward Teller requests $6,000 for research on preliminary uranium graphite slow neutron experiments, which is grudgingly approved. And I do imagine these guys having some pushback because this shit is hard to understand. They're like, listen, we got to get some, uh, you know, preliminary uranium graphite slow neutron experiments. Like, fuck, fucking what? In English, please. And then they try to like break it down. And it's like, nope, still don't get it. March 1940, Otto Frisch, Rudolf Pierls conclude that only one pound. Why can't any of these guys have a name like Bob fucking Johnson either? It's fucking scientists talking about stupid, crazy shit. It's not stupid, I know, but it's just like, it's like one Scrabble word after another and they can't even have a decent fucking simple name. Otto Frisch and Rudolph fucking stupid vowel name conclude that only one pound of highly enriched uranium is needed for a bomb. Meanwhile, the Nazis continue to attack their neighbors. April 9th, 1940, the Nazis invade Denmark and Norway. April 10th, the first meeting of the British Committee, later codenamed Maud Committee, organized by Henry Tizard. There you go. I like you, Henry. To consider Britain's actions regarding the uranium problem. Research into isotope separation and fast fission is agreed upon. Britain knows it may need a new level of weapon in order to stop the Fuhrer. April 27th, the so-called Uranium Committee is in the U.S., led by U.S. engineer and physicist Lyman Briggs, meets for the second time. They first met on November 1st, 1939. They decide to postpone research on fast fission and work on critical uranium graphite assembly until more small-scale lab experiments are conducted to make sure that when they go big with research, they move in the right direction, right? Because there's all these different possibilities of how this thing might explode. They're trying to, you know, get started on the right path. They don't waste a bunch of time. May 10th, 1940, Germany launches a massive assault on Western Europe, attacking Holland, Belgium, France. June of 1940, the Mod Committee that British, uh, you know, research group officially acquires its name. The acronym thought to stand for Military Application of Uranium Detonation. Franz Simon, a German and British physical chemist and physicist, begins research on isotope separation through gaseous diffusion. On June 27, 1940, the National Defense Research Committee is created to organize U.S. scientific resources for war, including research on the atom and the fission of uranium. Things are starting to pick up. On July 1st, the newly founded National Defense Research Committee, headed by Vannevar Bush, takes over responsibility for uranium research. In his final report, Lyman Briggs requests $140,000 for more work. $40,000 for lab measurements, $100,000 for large-scale uranium graphite studies. Bush approves only forty dollars Come on, Bush! Can't go cheap on the nukes! God knows what Hitler's up to. November 1940, physicists John Dunning and Harold Ure began investigating isotope separation techniques without U.S. government support. Bush not cutting them a check isn't going to stop them from pushing forward. Also in November, the $40,000 contract from the NDRC finally comes through. Lab work begins in Manhattan, New York to assemble a large subcritical pile made of graphite and uranium oxide. And that's where the Manhattan Project name comes from. This, you know, this initial funded lab. In December uh, 1940, the Mod Committee in Britain issues a report on isotope separation authored by Franz Simon. 
The report concludes that manufacturing uranium-235 by gaseous diffusion is feasible on a scale suitable for weapons production. Oh! Nuclear. Bombs are looking more possible by the second. A few months later, in February 1941, an American chemist, future Nobel Prize winner Glenn Seaborg, and his research team discover plutonium. Love plutonium. It's a nuclear word that I feel very confident pronouncing. Plutonium. Plutonium. Love it. On March 28, 1941, chemists Joseph Kennedy, Glenn Seaborg, Italian physicist, future Nobel Prize winner Emilio Segre, show, uh, they, they get a plutonium sample to undergo slow fission, which implies it is potential bomb material. More progress. More progress is happening elsewhere in the world, too, or at least attempts at, uh, you know, atomic progress. May of 1941, Tokitaro Hagawara at the University of Kyoto delivers a speech in which he discusses the possibility of fusion explosions being ignited by atomic bombs, apparently the first such mentioned. Important to mention that Japan, another Axis power in World War II, also working on atomic weapons during World War II. Their weapons program was headed by the scientific contemporary of Albert Einstein, or a scientific contemporary, Dr. Yoshio uh, Nishina, Japanese, never got very far with their atomic weapons program uh, until April of 1941. Japan and Germany would have their programs hindered by trouble finding weapon-grade uranium. They just couldn't find the right isotopes. I feel a little bit smarter saying that word than I did yesterday. They could get uranium-238, but not uranium-235. <laughs> I mean, they had a, sure, they had a ton of old shitty old RV park-grade uranium. Any old, any old wannabe nuke master can get 238s, but they couldn't find the, two, you know, the, the, the 235s. I mean, you want 235? I can get you 235, believe me. There are ways, dude. You don't want to know about it, believe me. Hell, I can get you 235 by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. Yes, I did slip into a little bit of Big Lebowski stuff for a second. Not Tombstone, but a top five favorite movie for sure. Another reason Japan didn't develop an atomic bomb before America was poor intelligence, just like Germany. Neither country believed America was capable of pulling off, developing the weapons that we did as fast as we did, Thank God the Manhattan Project was kept as secret as it was because if information would have been leaked out, it could have changed the war and the future of the world substantially. The war would come down to a battle of nerds and our nerds were able to win, you know, in part because of the U.S. government's efforts to maintain total secrecy with this project. Thank God again that Russia was on our side for the war effort. Also in May of 1941, after months of growing pressure from scientists in Britain and the U.S., Vannevar Bush at the National Defense Research Committee decides to review the prospects of nuclear energy further and engages Arthur Compton and the National Academy of Sciences for this task. He's ready to spend more money. The report is issued May 17th, treats military prospects favorably for power production, does not address the design or manufacture of a bomb yet in any detail. At the same time, Bush creates a larger and more powerful Office of Scientific Research and Development, OSRD, empowered to engage in large engineering projects in addition to research and becomes its director. On June 22, 1941, Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union. Oh, Germans are getting real aggressive across the pond. Might need to prioritize atomic weapons research. On July 15, 1941, the MOD committee approves its final report and disbands. The report describes atomic bombs in some technical detail provides specific proposals for how to develop them, and includes cost estimates. The contents of the MOD report reach reach Vannevar Bush, but not through official channels quite yet. The U.S. has spies as well, even inside the ranks of its allies. He understands that an atomic bomb is now a feasible creation, but can they build one quick enough? From August to September 1941, Enrico Fermi and his team of scientists in Manhattan began assembling 
a subcritical experimental pile containing 30 tons of graphite, 8 tons of uranium oxide. The results indicate that purer materials will be needed to create weapons-grade isotopes. In September of 41, Enrico asked Edward Teller whether a fission explosion could ignite a fusion reaction in deuterium, also known as heavy hydrogen. After some studies, Teller concludes that it is that it is impossible to create a hydrogen bomb. Well, after the, after the war, they would find out that's not true. On the 3rd of September, 1941, with Prime Minister Winston Churchill's endorsement, the British Chiefs of Staff agreed to begin development of an atomic bomb. On October 3rd, the Maud Report reaches the U.S. through official channels. On October 9th, Vannevar Bush brings the Maud Report to President Roosevelt for his consideration. FDR asked Bush to determine the cost of an atomic bomb and to explore Army construction needs. It's getting serious now. On October 21st, a variety of American physicists review the British Maud Report, conclude the review by stating that they feel confident they can build an atomic bomb. On November 1st, U.S. scientists John Dunning and Eugene Booth in Manhattan demonstrate the first measurable U.S. 235 enrichment through gaseous diffusion. Getting closer, getting closer all the time. December 6th, Vannevar Bush holds a meeting in Washington to organize an accelerated research project. An accelerated is an understatement. The advances in science made with the Manhattan Project would have probably taken multiple generations to figure out without the huge push that was made, without all the money, you know, pushed toward all the top minds were gathered and able to work together. No expense was spared once this project really got going. You know, the, the, the U.S. was able to build this bomb was because of, you know, national focus, the priority given the Manhattan Project. December 7th, 1941, a day that has lived in infamy, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. The next day, the U.S. declares war on Japan. Three days later, December 11th, the U.S. declares war on Germany and Italy following their declarations of war against the U.S. America has some skin in the game now, even more reason to push its atomic project further and faster. December 18th, 1941, first meeting of the S-1 project, updated version of the Uranium Committee. It's held, sponsored by the Office of Scientific Research and Development, dedicated to the full-scale research development of fission weapons. January 19th, 42, President Roosevelt officially approves production of an atomic bomb. Eleanor mumbles behind him as he signs, finally, finally got some balls. Maybe let's put some lead back in your pencil. I'm not sure that the Eleanor uh, part is true. My, my sources for that quote are, are pretty weak, actually. Uh, Arthur Compton creates the Metallur Metallurgical Laboratory at the University of Chicago, acts as a consolidated research center. He transfers work on uranium burners, also known as reactors, to it. Oppenheimer organizes a program on fast neutron theoretical physics at the University of California at Berkeley. February 1942, Arthur Compton asked physicist Gregory Bright to coordinate physics research on fast neutron phenomena. All these nerds work on so much nerd shit. Lab coats being worn around the clock. Beakers always polished. Chalkboards filled up with equations. Papers balled up and thrown in trash cans in frustration. Strong nerd words thrown about when the numbers don't add up. My heck! Is that a flippin' answer I want? Ah, son of a biscuit! It was fucking crazy, you guys. April of 42, Enrico Fermi relocates to the Chicago Met Lab. He's building that experimental pile, you know, a, a low kind of grade nuclear reactor in the Stagfield squash course. Begins planning the construction of the world's first man-made critical pile to be called Chicago Pile 1, simply CP1. Or simply, yeah, Fermi's efforts now shift from demonstrating feasibilities to, to securing graphite and uranium of adequate purity and sufficient quantity to get their weapons going. May 18th, 1942, Gregory Bright, who's been coordinating physics research on fast neutron phenomena, quits leaving the neutron physics effort without leadership. He just felt that, you know, things were moving too slow. There had also been numerous security breaches under his watch. 
So he decides to step out, get out of the way, and le- let somebody else lead. And that's when Compton asks Oppenheimer to take over in his place. May 19th, 42, Oppenheimer writes Ernest Lawrence that the atomic bomb problem is solved in principle and that six good physicists should have the details mostly worked out in six months. Now, he was a wee bit optimistic here. Take longer than six months. But he, you know, he was right about being able to accomplish it, and he, and he will see this project through to its fruition. June of 42, Oppenheimer leads an effort on fast neutron physics, prepares an outline for the entire neutron physics program. Still in June 42, the Chicago Met Lab Engineering Council begins uh, developing plans for large-scale plutonium production. FDR approves a plan for spending 85 mil for this weapon development program. June 18th, due to continuing and increasing organizational problems, Colonel James Marshall is ordered by Brigadier General Wilhelm Steyer to organize a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers district to take over and consolidate atomic bomb development. On June 28th, 42, Germany and her Axis partners launch a new offensive in the Soviet Union. German troops fight their way into Stalingrad on the Volga River by mid-September and penetrate deep into the Caucasus after securing the Crimean Peninsula. Damn Nazis, still kicking everyone's asses. Let's get that fucking bomb ready. Between July and September 42, Oppenheimer assembles a theoretical study group in Berkeley to examine the principles of bomb design. During the summer, the group develops the principles of atomic bomb design and examines the feasibility of fusion bombs, and Oppenheimer emerges as a natural leader. The group estimates the mass of U-235 required for a high-yield detonation. July 27th, 42, the first shipment of irradiated uranium, 300 pounds of it, arrives at the Chicago Met Lab. In mid-August, Enrico Fermi's group demonstrates that an experimental pile with a projected K value of close to 1.04, achieving a chain reaction that will produce a massive massive explosion is now certain. On August 13th, the Manhattan Engineer District is formally assembled. August 20th, Glenn Seaborg isolates pure plutonium through separation process suitable for industrial-scale use. All these people working in all these different places to make this possible. September 14th, 1942, the S-1 Executive Committee recommends building a pilot plant based on Ernest Lawrence's cyclotrons to separate uranium isotopes in Tennessee. The Manhattan Project is really getting going now. September 17th, Colonel Leslie Groves, General Leslie Groves, he would be by the end, who he met before the timeline, notified that his new assignment is to command the Manhattan Engineer District. The next day, Colonel Groves buys 1,250 tons of high-quality Belgian-Congo uranium ore stored on Staten Island. And then on the 19th of September, He selects Oak Ridge, Tennessee as a site for a pilot plant. He buys Site X, which consists of 52,000 acres of land on the Clinch River. Preliminary construction will begin soon. September 19th, at Grove's insistence, the Manhattan Project, as it's now being called, is granted approval by the War Production Board to use the highest emergency procurement priority in existence when needed. You know, basically, it's dear, uh, you know, dear Grove's, whatever you need, you just fucking get it. Sincerely, Uncle Sam. On September 23rd, 1942, Groves is promoted to Brigadier General. On September 29th, Oppenheimer proposes that a fast neutron lab to study fast neutron physics and develop designs for an atomic bomb needs to be created. In October of 42, General Groves puts the DuPont Company in charge of plutonium production. On October 5th, 1942, Groves visits the Chicago Met Lab and meets key scientists, including Oppenheimer. He orders key engineering decisions for plutonium production under debate for months be made in five days, you know, get it done, you fucking nerds. We don't have time for your egghead disagreements. Pick a goddamn plutonium thingy, make it weapony. That's an order. On October 15th, General Groves asked Oppenheimer to head Project Y, planned to be the new central lab for weapon physics research and design. I'll turn into Los Alamos. 
November 12th, 42, the Military Policy Commission decides to skip any pilot plant stages, go directly from research to industrial production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to it. Let's make it. On November 16th, Groves and Oppenheimer visit in New Mexico and think, yes, this will do just fine for the weaponsmiths. On November 25th, General Groves selects Los Alamos as the site for scientific research, codename Project Y, projects inside of projects, codenames inside of codenames, keep it all secret. Oppenheimer selected as laboratory director. In December, Fermi's group completes Chicago Pile 1. It works. A critical configuration has been reached. They can get the uranium they need. On December 6, 42, the M.M. Sunt Company is appointed as a contractor to build Los Alamos Laboratory in a handshake deal. They don't want any paperwork. Sun begins construction immediately. Plans and blueprints are drawn up as they begin to break ground. So they start on this construction project before they have any plans. I love it. Uh, what are we building? We don't have time to talk about it, M.M. Sunt. Just start digging some big old fucking foundation holes and we'll fill you in on a need-to-know basis. Yeah I, uh, yeah, I need to know what we're building. You need to shut your fucking face and dig, you son of a bitch. Uh, during the month of December 42, the work on gaseous diffusion improves. Gaseous diffusion is chosen as the principal enrichment approach. The Kellex Corporation, a subsidiary of the Kellogg Corporation created to build various atomic facilities. Contracts are put in place. Hiring begins for plant construction. Kellex was formed to, to keep everything secret. Documents now can, you know, won't show up in Kellogg's normal files. Uh, and the Kellogg Corporation, by the way, not related to Kellogg cereals, which is what I thought for quite some time uh, as, as I was preparing this suck. The Kellogg Company was a, a big New York City-based industrial construction company. Uh, at first, I was like, what are the Frosted Flakes and Cheez-It people doing building a, a nuclear <laughs> base, you know? Will Kellogg, I need you to build me some giant secret nuke bases and do it fast. Can I count on you? Certainly, Mr. President, if I can build boxes of small, tasty, crunchy cheese wafers, if, if I can make, you know, super sugary diabetes cereal and somehow convince Americans it's good for them, well, by God, I can build you some nuke bases. Also in December of 42, Vannevar Bush provides Roosevelt with an estimate placing the total cost for the Manhattan Project at $400 million, almost five times as much as the previous cost estimate. FDR hesitates, and then Eleanor punches him in the solar plexus. Sign it, you weak-willed son of a bitch! He reluctantly signs. And by reluctantly, I mean he didn't hesitate. He signed it just fine. And now, before we wrap up 1942, let's take a quick break from the timeline for just one last sponsor. Uh, again, <laughs> Time Suck is brought to you today by Anton Satanic Big Top or Less Strip Show. Another reminder, there's so many celebrity judges I forgot to mention earlier. <laughs> like Ed Kemper. Mother. Why are the naked ladies dancing and making my micropain tingle? Thinking about my micropene roused my shapples, mother. Robert Butcher Baker Hanson also gonna be there. Damn it, these girls Forget it! Paranormal puppet Woody and his handler Charles Gutton will be on hand. Are you GT Charles? I'm sprouting a new branch that I need to water if you give what I'm saying. Chicken Joe will also be showing up. Bye bye, Playboy. Bye bye. I'm about to break out Don's fingers for sure. So he can't clap, he can't squawk squawk no more. Even Pooty and Juju are gonna be there. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Too little, too diddle, Pooty. Wish I could put it in her lunchbox. Oh my heck! And stick around after the contest for the after party. Andrew Hole swinging by, bringing his air banjo jam band to get busy with Anton the Calliope. Ding, 
Wow! That, of course, is not a sponsor, but I kind of wish it was a real event. Hey, Lucifina, our real sponsor, where I'm not going to talk like this anymore, is the awesome Great Courses Plus. Yes, today's time is brought to you by Great Courses Plus. Seems like there's an infinite amount of information uploaded to the internet every day. It's hard to know what's accurate. That's why I love the Great Courses Plus. Valuable, in-depth content I can trust. The streaming service offers thousands of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really know their stuff. Topics range from mythology of the world to ancient Mesopotamia, from surviving in the wild to life lessons from the great books, much more. And the best part, we can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. Right? A very easy-to-use app, very easy-to-use website. I, I recommend checking out the course Understanding the Dark Side of Human Nature. This course explores evil, immortality, sin, and the unpleasant facts of the human condition through stories and philosophy that crosses cultures. I recommend lecture three, What is Evil? A talk about questioning both whether evil actually exists, what it means to call an action evil, very pertinent to today's suck. You know, was dropping the atomic bombs evil or not? We're going to discuss that later. So stop second guessing. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for Time Suckers, Meat Sacks to get a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library when you sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. And now back to 1942. And I, and I just, now I just want to keep doing that weird, like clown kind of, you know, burlesque DJ voice. Can you imagine if I did the entire, just ran through facts through the episode? Still in December of 1942, uh, plans and contracts were made for the construction of an experimental reactor, a plutonium separation plant, and an electromagnetic separation facility at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. <laughs> nah, that'd be painful. For me, at least. January 16th, 1943, General Grove selects Hanford, Washington as a site for plutonium production. The big three, Hanford, Oak Ridge, Los Alamos, they're all moving now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hail Nimrod. Let's move. September, uh, February of 1943, the Soviet Union secretly launches its own atomic program under the direction of Igor Kurchatov. The program was extremely limited throughout the war and never included more than 50 personnel. Whew. Thank thankfully. March of 1943, the original construction program nears completion. Staff begins to arrive at Los Alamos to begin testing operations. From this point on, the site grows nonstop throughout the end of the war. Uh, I didn't find it in any research, but I imagine contractor M.M. Soont still being kept in the dark. What would you like me to, to build next, General? You finish what you're building now, son. And when tomorrow comes, I'll tell you where to pour some concrete, if that's even what we're doing. Might be asphalt, maybe wood. Maybe we're building a redwood deck for my new summer home, okay, you piece of shit? I don't trust you, son. And that's why you will never know what's going on around here. It's definitely not a new theme park. Wink, wink. It's not that. There will not be water slides. Please don't tell anyone about our top secret roller coasters. Uh, by the 1st of April, the Oak Ridge site's closed off to public access. Also, construction begins on a plant for manufacturing gaseous diffusion barriers in Decatur, Illinois. In April, Los Alamos provides a scientist inductory lectures on nuclear physics and bomb design. At the beginning of the month of April, the original building plan for the Los Alamos installation is 96% complete. It's already apparent that the original construction program inadequate to meet needs. M.M. Soot has a nervous breakdown. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta talk to me. I would have made him bigger. I would have just... <laughs> plans. Uh, still in April, a series of staff conferences amongst the roughly 100 scientific staff members is held at Los Alamos. Physicist Seth Niermeyer begins research on implosion, seeking to compress hollow metal assemblies. Also in April, 
German-American physicist Hans Beth is selected over American theoretical physicist Edward Teller to head the theoretical division. Teller is placed in charge of research on fusion weapons. Old Robbie Oppenheimer projects that 100 grams of 25% enriched U-235 will be produced by electromagnetic separation by January 1st, 1944. And General Groves is, is happy with this timeline. You know, he's probably like, yeah, yeah, great. Mm-hmm, mm, yeah, January 44th. Yeah, that's about what I was thinking. You know, I thought, I, I thought it would take about that long to make a 100 grams of the, you know, the, the U-235 stuff for sure. Yep, a couple extra isotopes, you know, every few days. I get it. You don't need to explain to me. <laughs> I might not be a scientist, but I, I understand all this stuff 100%. 100% for sure. On the last day of May 1943, surveying begins at the K-25 plant, the gaseous diffusion uranium enrichment plant at Oak Ridge. Construction begins in June. June 24th, working with the cyclotron, produces plutonium, another step closer to the atomic bomb. From July 10th through the 15th, 1943, the first nuclear physics experiments conducted at Los Alamos. In August of that year, despite the efforts of more than 1,000 researchers at Kellex and Columbia University, no suitable gaseous, gaseous diffusion barrier material has been developed yet. Due to lagging progress on this, continuing uncertainties about the required amount of U-235 needed for the bomb, General Groves decides to double the size of the Y-12 plant, built in Oak Grove to enrich uranium. Doubling down. All this must have been so frustrating for people like Groves, man, who weren't scientists, who had to supervise all of this. So hard to, like, give these guys deadlines. You know, you got somebody in the Pentagon checking in all the time. Why aren't the nukes ready, Groves? Uh, they're working as fast as they can, sir. Are they, Groves? If they're working so hard, why don't we have those nukes yet? I don't know, sir. Not exactly. It's all very confusing, to be honest, sir. But I've been yelling at them more, and they seem to write equations on the chalkboard faster with more urgency. There's also been a lot more beaker activity lately, sir. A lot more isotope, to- or isotope talk. Well, push those nerds harder, Groves. I'll-, I'll try, sir, but they're soft, so soft. They're not like soldiers, sir. Sometimes when I yell at them, they cry, sir. They throw down their clipboards and they pout. It's very frustrating. If I could beat the correct equations out of them, God knows I would, sir. I'd be hitting, kicking nerds 24 hours a fucking day, sir. Uh, Still in August 1943, the first Alpha Electromagnetic Separation Unit for uranium begins operation. Construction staff at Oak Ridge now exceeds 20,000 people. 20,000 people who don't know what they're working on. How weird is that? Uh, Also in August, construction begins on all the cooling systems for production reactors at Hanford, Washington. Construction staff there, about 5,000. Around this time, President FDR, Winston Churchill, signed the Quebec Agreement. The UK and the USA basically pledged to work together on uh, nukes, and formally agree not to fuck each other over. You know, not to use the tech on other countries without consent or communicate their findings to any other countries. It also gave the president of the USA the final say in these matters since the U.S. was taking on most of the financial costs. To make sure England knew, you know, it was, you know, running second fiddle to the U.S., Eleanor Roosevelt spit in Churchill's face and flicked his balls. And she pulled him close and she's like, what, bitch? What? What the fuck you gonna do? Sorry. I'm having a lot of fun making former suck subject Eleanor Roosevelt just a ruthless kind of gangster bully in this timeline. Uh, September 8th, 1943, Italy surrenders to Allied forces. This is nice. This is big. One of the big three. Access powers is down. I mean, the least powerful for sure, but still. Allied powers are, you know, winning the war. So should the U.S. halt atomic research? No. Because the U.S. can't know for sure that Germany isn't making faster atomic progress than they are, or that Japan isn't. Even though victory in World War II is, is looking to, you know, starting to look more certain by the day, you know, some new, very big, very, you know, bomb could instantly turn things around for the Nazis and the Japanese. In October of 43, Project Alberta, the full-scale atomic bomb delivery program begins. Physicist Norman Ramsey, another future Nobel winner, selected to modify aircraft for delivering atomic bombs. 
October 4th, DuPont engineers released reactor design drawings for the first Hanford plutonium production pile. In November of 43, the top experts in England on fission weapons, many former members of the MOD committee depart England for the U.S. to desist an atomic bomb, you know, this project. Let's get it going faster. Also in November, Soviet troops liberate Kiev. The Nazis not prepared for sustained siege, sustained siege and the harshness of a Russian winter. On November 29th, the first B-29 modifications began in Wright Field, Ohio to adapt it for carrying the heavier atomic bombs. In January of 44, the development of the bomb is racing forward. George, crazy last name, Kisitikowski, something like that, Ukrainian-American physical chemistry professor from Harvard arrives at Los Alamos to assist Seth Niedermeyer in implosion research. Also in January, General Groves and Oppenheimer began planning the first test for a fission bomb. Groves stipulates that the active material must be recoverable if a fizzle occurs. So the construction of Jumbo, a 214-ton steel container, is authorized to capture you know, the, the, the material in case the bomb doesn't fully explode. March 3rd, 1944, uh, drop tests of dummy atomic bombs begin from a specially modified B-29s in Wendover, Utah, doing stuff all over the place. Also in March, fearing Hungary's intention to desert an Axis partnership, the Germans occupy Hungary and appoint a pro-German minister president. Nazis still have a lot of fight in them, as do the Japanese. In April of 44, IBM calculating equipment arrives at Los Alamos is put to work on implosion research. Also in April, British physicist James Tuck suggests the idea of using explosive lenses to create spherical converging implosion waves. Finally, I've been waiting for that for so long. Gosh, man. Everyone knows that spherical converging implosion waves are way fucking better than using just a variety of simultaneous detonation points over the surface of a sphere. I mean, sure, you can try different methods of, you know, inert spacers or gaps to suppress the shape charge, you know, like jets, you know, from the, when detonation waves from adjacent initiation points merge. But everyone knows you're just going to be spalling on the interior surface of the hollow core, which is obviously a serious problem. I tried to throw a lot of big words together. I don't know if any of that shit made any sense at all, but I know that I heard a pop inside my head and I smell blood. Around that same time, the Monsanto company in Dayton, Ohio, begins delivering polonium for initiator research. Mm, Monsanto, the Illuminati. By May of 44, the Los Alamos staff exceeds 1,200 employees. More and more people working on this project. Also in the month of May, two British scientists join Los Alamos to prove to have important impacts on the implosion program. May 9th, the 50 milliwatt water boiler reactor goes critical at Los Alamos, holding 565 grams of U-35 dissolved in a 12-inch sphere of water. This is the world's first reactor to be used, uh, to be using enriched uranium and the first critical assembly constructed at Los Alamos. And it's, and it's like super important for nuke bombs, right? These, these fucking nuke nerds, they've almost done it. On May 28th of 1944, the first test of the exploding wire detonator used to achieve precise, reliable, simultaneous detonation for implosion occurs. Bomb, almost check. Detonator for almost check bomb, fully checked. June 6, 1944, Allied forces launched the Normandy invasion. Over 425,000 Allied and German troops are killed, wounded, or go missing during the Battle of Normandy. This figure includes over 209,000 Allied casualties with nearly 37,000 dead amongst the ground forces and a further 16,714 deaths amongst the Allied air forces. The Allies win this battle and are winning the war, but a lot of Allied troops are dying in order to accomplish this. By the end of the war, over 400,000 U.S. soldiers will die. Nearly 400,000 more British soldiers will die. Millions of soldiers and civilians are dying in China, India, the Philippines, elsewhere. Some estimates put the total Soviet death toll at over 25 million for the war. 
Plus, there's the Holocaust. Between 5 and 6 million Jewish Europeans will die. More than 70,000 people with disabilities will die. More than 200,000 Romani people. So many other different types of people either dead or about to die. There's still a lot of incentive to complete atomic bombs and drop them if it's, you know, clear that the Nazis and Japanese will lose the war. If, you know, if, that, if that's what's going to end it, it could, you know, save so many other, you know, potential deaths. Late in the evening of June 15th, B-29 Super Fortress bombers set off for an air raid on mainland Japan. Their target? The Imperial Iron and Steelworks at Iwata and Northern Kyushu. Japan has so far remained free from air attacks since the largely symbolic Doolittle raid in 1942. Taking the war directly at them obviously has strategic advantages. It could demoralize them, shatter their illusions of invincibility. Also, if the atomic bomb is made, you know, you got to prove that you can get there. Uh, the, the run is, you know, the, the, the run that they do here, more effective than the Doolittle raid. When 16 B-52 Mitchells were launched from the USS Hornet to attack targets in Tokyo and Yokohama in response to Pearl Harbor bombings. The bombers were then to fly into China, land safely at pro-U.S. Pro bases, and while some bombs were dropped proving Japan was vulnerable to air raids, only about 50 Japanese were killed, and all the bombers either crashed or ditched short of their designated landing strips. Most did not reach their bombing targets or land their bombs, you know, where they intended to. The bombing of Iwata, a little more successful, like I said, 75 bombers head out on this mission, 47 reach their targets. However, most of the bombs do not actually hit the targets. Minimal damage is sustained. Also, five B-29s are lost in the raid. The raid does sow some seeds of doubt in the minds of Japanese citizens who have been fed steady propaganda for years about how the Allies were incapable of ever reaching them again. Now they knew this wasn't true. But the U.S. would have to do a lot better to carry the Manhattan Project to its desired war-ending conclusion. On July 4th, 1944, Oppenheimer reveals Emilio Segre's spontaneous fission measurements to the Los Alamos staff. The discovery of the high spontaneous fission rate of reactor-produced plutonium was a turning point at Los Alamos, the Manhattan Project, and eventually for the practice of large-scale science after the war. With just 12 months to go before expected weapon delivery, a new fundamental technology, explosive wave shaping, has to be invented, made reliable, and an enormous array of engineering problems still have to be solved. During this next year, the foundations for a variety of post-war scientific advancements are laid. Scientists, administrators, as opposed to academic or research scientists, will now be used going forward to run large-scale research efforts. Automated numerical techniques, as opposed to previous manual analytical ones, will be applied going forward to solve important scientific problems. Less chalkboards, more calculators. This line of thinking will lead to the development of computers. Let the robots do the number crunching. Soon, no one will ever need to carry the one anymore, manually. Still in July of 1944, uh, a number of other things happen. First, the design for a thing called a gun gadget neutron initiator is completed. What's a neutron gun? Sadly, it's not some kind of futuristic Star Trek laser type gun. No, it's a thing that kickstarts the whole nuclear chain reaction at the optimal moment to make the bomby bomb go boom, boom at the right time. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tibbetts begins organizing the 509th Composite Group in July as well at Wendover Field in Utah. This is the group that will fly and deliver the atomic bombs in combat. And in July, starting with the Battle of the Philippine Sea, uh, a key naval battle that effectively wiped out the Japanese Imperial Navy's carrier fleet, the United States begins to push back against Japan in the Philippines. In August of 44, the Air Force begins modifying 17 B-29s for combat delivery of atomic weapons. In September, FDR and British Prime Minister Churchill signed the Hyde Park Aid Memoir, pledging to continue researching atomic technology together. On October 27th, Oppenheimer approves plans for a bomb test at Alamogordo Bombing Range in New Mexico. Shit's about to get real, taking the research from the lab 
to the dirt. In October, Japan launches its first kamikaze pilot attack against the U.S. naval fleet at Leyte, an island in the Philippines. Approximately 2,800 Japanese suicide bombers would die during World War II, according to estimates. Would be interesting to do a suck on kamikaze pilots someday, or World War II from Japan's perspective. I feel like their story gets lost in the West, most of the focus being on Nazi aggression. Uh, kamikaze pilots managed to hit targets around 14% of the time, sinking 34 Navy ships, damaging 368 others. They killed almost 5,000 sailors and injured almost 5,000 more in the war. On November 24th, the first B-29 raid on Tokyo is launched from newly built army bases on the Marinara Islands. Operation San Antonio 1, U.S. forces had captured the Japanese-held islands of Guam, Saipan, Tinian between June and August. F-13s had successfully flown over Tokyo on November 1st and taken numerous reconnaissance photos. And then 111 bombers head out for their primary target, the Mushishino Aircraft Plant. 24 of the B-29 set out for this base. The rest go for a variety of other industrial targets around the city. These were the first planes to attempt to attack Tokyo itself since Operation Doolittle. The attack, again, causes minimal damage, but further erodes Japanese, uh, Japanese civilians' confidence in their government's assurances of victory and their government's assurances that they won't allow the war to come to them. The U.S. getting better and better at bombing mainland Japan. In December of 1944, the Y-12 plant output climbs from 40 grams in November to 90 grams of highly enriched uranium a day. Also, work begins on an implosion initiator for the solid core bomb. Still not clear at this point if one can be made. Late in December, the first successful explosive lens tests are conducted at Los Alamos, establishing the feasibility of really making this an uh, um, implosion bomb a reality. And quickly, December 8th of 44, Polish physicist Joseph Rotblat fired from the Manhattan Project when General Groves learns that he is in fact Polish. Groves had long suspected Rotblat of being Polish, catching him eating pierogies in the break room with his bare hands numerous times. Uh, even once hearing Rotblat hiss and grunt at another worker, who came too close to his precious little balls of dough, cheese, and onions. Other scientists had complained for months that he didn't even know what a fraction was, let alone nuclear physics. And they said he reeked of cabbage and grilled mutton. And of course, that's not true. Polish physicist Joseph Roplat resigns from the Manhattan Project in late 1944 when he learns that U.S. intelligence had figured out that Germany had now abandoned its plans to develop its own atomic bomb project. And he no longer saw the point in developing such a devastating weapon. He would also claim years later that over dinner, he overheard General Grove say that the bomb had less to do with ending the war and more to do with sending the Soviets a message. They were already thinking about the Cold War. The U.S., you know, may have allied with the Soviets during the war, but both sides knew that ideolo ideologically they were enemies and would be enemies after the war was over. This talented physicist would dedicate the rest of his career to de-escalating the development of nuclear weapons and banning their testing. In 1995, he would win the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to diminish the part played by nuclear arms in international affairs and in the long run to eliminate such arms. This project, of course, continues without his involvement, the Manhattan Project, on December 17th. But it shows that, you know, people, you know, during the project were thinking like, is this a good idea? Should we be doing this? Is this really moral to be doing this? On December 17th, the wonderfully named D-Pile goes critical at Hanford with sufficient reactivity to overcome fission product poisoning effects. Large-scale plutonium production begins. Now we're really building the bomb. January of 45, number of steps forward occur. The Y-12 plant reaches an output of 204 grams of U-235 a day. That'll have enough, uh, they'll be able to make enough to have the bomb by July 1st plus 160 grams of plutonium from the X-10 graphite reactors on hand at Los Alamos with more coming from Hanford soon. 
In addition, substantial production of 85% of rich uranium begins at the S-50 plant. 10 of 21 racks going into production uh, operation. General Groves has no fucking idea what any of this means, as nor do I. But the nuke nerds assure him it's all very good. It's very, very important. Excellent. This is, yes, it's going very well indeed. In the South Pacific, the U.S. Army and Navy continues to battle to start the new year. Bombing raids continue to be launched against mainland Japan. Most achieve little success. The Allies are for sure winning the war in early 1945. At this point, it's not a matter of if they will win, but when. They also don't believe Japan is even remotely close to developing its own atomic weapons. However, if you recall, the Unit 731 suck way back in November of 2017 that we did, Japan was also working hard at developing biological weapons for the purpose of widespread civilian death and devastation in America and elsewhere. So, the pursuit of the big bomb still feels morally justified. Right? Also, if the bombs work, they will end the war much earlier and save an untold number of soldiers' lives. Talk about that in detail later. Uh, the scientists continue to do science shit in February. It's a busy month. The F-reactor goes online at Hanford, raises theoretical production capacity. The nuke nerds let everyone know this is good. February 2nd, Los Alamos receives its first plutonium from Hanford. Also good. A lot of nerd high fives getting tossed around. Uranium gun design, a method of detonation completed. Yep, nerds are fucking so excited about that. They're doing like nerd cheers and stuff. Uh, only planning for develop- deployment and combat use. Once U-235 is delivered is now required. They're almost there. At this time, planning for an implosion bomb test begins in earnest. Initiator tests begin. Initiator tests begin. Demand demand for polonium from Dayton uh, rises to 100 curies a month. Admiral Nimitz, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Ocean Areas, is notified of the nature of the atomic bomb project now. He will be called upon soon to launch the most devastating air raid any nation in the world has ever seen. Also during February, Tinian Island, one of the three principal islands of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, is selected as the base of operations for the atomic attack. The round-trip flight from Tinian to Tokyo took B-29s an average of 12 hours. This proximity to Japan is one reason Tinian would serve as the headquarters for the 509th Composite Group, 509th. Uh, Meanwhile, the War of the World continues. On February 13th, Dresden, Germany is burned to the fucking ground in an incendiary, incendiary raid killing 25,000 people, mostly civilians. Like Hiroshima, Jesus Christ, like Hiroshima, excuse me, this cold is driving me crazy. Like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the moral justification for the bombing of Dresden would be called into question after the war. Most of the targets obliterated in this massive bombing raid were civilian, no military strategic value. Over 1,200 British and American bombers dropped more than 3,900 tons of high explosive bombs and incendiary devices on the city raising 1,600 acres of the urban center to smoldering rubble. But, you know, war is hell. On February 19, 1945, U.S. Marines land on Iwo Jima, a Japanese observation post for the B-29 raids. Over the next two months, 6,281 U.S. Marines are killed, 21,865 additional Marines are wounded, capturing the island from 20,000 Japanese defenders. The continuing death toll from battles like this will be used as moral justification for dropping the bombs. On February 23rd, a firebomb test raid on Tokyo with 172 planes burns a full square mile of city, the most destructive raid on Japan to date. The air raids are becoming more and more effective. Japan, though, despite the fight coming more and more often to their soil, has no intention to stop fighting anytime soon. On March 9th through the 10th, General Curtis LeMay launches an all-out low-altitude firebomb raid on Tokyo with 334 B-29s now. Flames engulf 15.8 square miles of the city, 
killing about 100,000 people, destroying over a quarter of a million buildings, and leaving over a million people homeless. Holy shit. I watched so many World War II documentaries, read so many books about the war, took a whole class years ago on, in college on World War II. And every time I dive back in, I learned about some new horror. It was such a fucking brutal war. So many atrocities occurred that major events like the March 1945 firebombing of Tokyo get lost, overshadowed by atomic bombs, the Holocaust. Over 100,000 people died in two days of bombing, bombing that targeted primarily civilians. Targeted bombing had continued to be largely unsuccessful. So the allies, you know, just decided, fuck them, kill them all. I mean, imagine if somebody did that to our country now. The 9-11 attacks were seen as cowardly, primarily because the terrorists targeted civilians. Just under 3,000 citizens died in those attacks. Mathematically, the March 1945 bombing to Tokyo was over 30 times as tragic. I mean, really think about that. I love America truly, but we've done shit just as evil as anyone else. And if you don't believe that, you are fucking kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. Makes me think of Anton LaVey's discussion of the nature of evil last week. You know, that what's good, what's evil, largely subjective, largely in the eye of the beholder. We kill a lot of civilians in some other country. That's ah, not evil. No, we, it, we, need, we needed to do that, justified in pursuit of national goals, national security, and our defense. Somebody does the exact same thing to us, evil motherfuckers. I have no doubt that after this firebombing, Japanese citizens thought Americans were the most evil motherfuckers the earth had ever seen. And we still hadn't dropped nukes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki yet. Now, saying all this, you know, do I think we were wrong to do what we did? No, fuck if I know. I'm not going to pretend to be some armchair general. I've never served in the military. I will never understand war like those who have. My intent in saying all this is no way to disrespect American military or to make any veterans question what they've done in times of war. My intent is to make us reevaluate the moral judgments we pass against the members of other nations and their armies. I don't think American soldiers fighting in World War II were evil at all. But I also don't think Japanese or Nazi soldiers were all evil either. That's too easy. That's simplistic black and white thinking. We're good. They're bad. We deserve to fuck them up. They deserve to be fucked up. Life isn't that simple. I don't believe that. I, I believe that war is hell and a lot of good people die on all sides when it happens, which is why we should avoid it at all costs, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary. I become somewhat jaded tackling so many dark subjects here on the suck. Man, sometimes, you know, the, the numbers, they just seem like numbers, no emotion attached to them. But then other times I just think about what they represent. and It just makes me so fucking sad. I mean, think about over 100,000 meat sacks. Civilians had nothing to do with bombing Pearl Harbor. They didn't know where the fuck it was on a map. You know, they didn't have nothing to do with fighting in Iwo Jima or anything else war-related. People probably just already lost children or brothers or fathers or friends to years of war. People working in little restaurants and shops, you know, worried about their bills, worried about how well their kids are doing in school, people falling in love, people in love, people looking forward to retirement, you know, I got another year, and then I'm gonna, man, I'm gonna go to Mount Fuji and fucking camp and shit and you know, meat sacks with similar dreams, hopes, and fears, and desires as you. Meat sacks with hearts beating the same as yours. And then the sky was set on fucking fire. Wow. After that, Japan's still not ready to surrender. It would take so much more blood to convince them to give up the fight. Uh, the bombing of Japan continues March 11th to the 18th. During these eight days, fire raids with similar tactics launched in Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe. The second, third, and fourth largest cities in Japan at the time. An additional 16 square miles of city are burned. More than 50,000 additional human candles snuffed the fuck out. Now, they did start trying to, like, give them a heads up. You know, they started dropping pamphlets, you know, before they would do this. Like, hey, I want to take a vacation. We're going to burn your city to the fucking ground in two days. Uh, the Manhattan Project continues. March 15th, 1945, all 21 racks at the thermal diffusion sector at the S-50 plant are finally in operation. 
April 3rd, preparations begin in Tinian Island to support the 509th composite group and to actually assemble atomic bombs. April 11th, Oppenheimer reports that George, fucking crazy name, Kiastaskowski, has achieved optimal performance with implosion compressions and subscale tests. They're almost there. The next day, Otto Frisch completes critically criticality and zero yield experiments with U-235 at Los Alamos. Nuke nerds celebrate by singing a somewhat enthusiastic adaptation of For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. That some people can deny, most notably the Japanese, we're not big fans of anything that's going on here for understandable reasons. Also on April 12th, FDR, the only man to be elected president of the United States four times, the Tom Brady of U.S. presidents, dies of a stroke. Eleanor is furious. She repeatedly kicks his corpse for several hours around the White House. Oh, you just couldn't hang on till the end, could you, FDR? I knew you were a big pussy. I knew it. If I was in charge, we would have had a nuke two years ago. No, she was super sad. Vice President Harry S. Truman becomes the 33rd president of the United States. Late on the night of the 12th, President Truman learns about the Manhattan Project from Secretary of War Henry Simpson. And he says, oh, shit, we can, we can do that? He'll be briefed in full two weeks later. Can you imagine? You're second in command, been fighting in this crazy war for years. Leader dies. And then someone's like, oh, hey, uh, come here. Uh, by the way, we're months away from having the most powerful weapon by far the world has ever fucking seen. Anyway, uh, are you going to be moving into the Lincoln room now? Uh, and your wife, Bess, had mentioned that she wanted to change the carpet. Whoa, 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 back up. What were you just saying about the weapon? Uh, Truman is reportedly pleased, very pleased by the Manhattan Project. He's fully on board with his continuation. April 27th, the first meeting of the Target Committee is held. Their job is exactly what their name implies, to conceptualize and build giant department stores that will be as addictive to housewives and stay-at-home moms as actual crack. Quality products for affordable prices with little pizza shops and electronic sections inside to make uh, them almost, you know, appealing uh, or at least tolerable to men. No. The target committee's job is to select targets for atomic bombing. They're very close now to developing atomic bombs. They're picking out where to drop them. 17 targets are selected for study. Tokyo Bay, Yokohama, Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, Hiroshima, Kokura, uh, Fukuoka, uh, Nagasaki, uh, Sasebo. Then some of these targets are quickly dismissed because conventional bombing raids had already fucking obliterated them. Still, Japan continues to fight. April 30th, the first batch of supplies for the atomic bomb deployment leaves for Tinian Island from Wendover, Utah. May of 45, the bomb named Little Boy is ready for combat use, except for the U-235 core. It's estimated that sufficient material will be available by August 1st. And what a weird name for an atomic bomb, by the way. Little Boy, not Grim Reaper. Not Annihilation, not Scorched Earth or Caligula or, you know, Satan's dildo. No, no metal is fuck name for the harbinger of death, Little Boy. What names didn't make the cut? Uh, we're thinking about calling it Candy Corn or maybe Rainbow Pony or, or Princess Party. All right, boys, today's a fucking day. We're going to end this war. Show every other nation on earth the true strength of the American military. Today is the day we unleash the beast. Get ready, world. It's time for the fucking Princess Party. May 7th, a 100-ton explosive test is conducted. Eight, 108 tons of TNT laced with 100 curies of reactor fission products are exploded 800 yards from Trinity Ground Zero to test instrumentation for the upcoming atomic Trinity test. And this is all New Mexico. This is the largest instrument, uh, instrumented explosion conducted up to this date. Got to make sure the scientists are able to measure the first atomic blast when it happens. Got to understand the blast theory before just tossing it down in Japan. This is also the date that Nazi Germany surrenders to the Allies. Hitler has lost the war. But Emperor Hirohito, not ready to surrender. The Japanese still held on to hope out of stubborn national pride that they could defeat America. The hope was rapidly fading, but it hadn't quite gone away yet. 
between May 10th and 11th, 1945, the target committee reconvenes. The target list is shortened to Kyoto, Hiroshima, Yokohama, and Kokuro Arsenal. Uh, Niigata is also considered. Nagasaki, not currently on the list. May 25th, uh, 464 B-29s raid Tokyo again, burning out nearly 16 square miles of the remaining city. Wow. Only a few thousand are killed since urban inhabitants have learned to flee firebomb attacks quickly and escape the flames. Also, Operation Olympic, the invasion of Kyushu, the southern Japanese island, is set to begin on November 1st. I never knew about this. Operation Olympic was part of Operation Downfall, a plan to invade the entirety of mainland Japan. And it's Operation Downfall that would really, you know, in the minds of many, uh, morally justify the dropping of the bombs. If not for the Manhattan Project, this is exactly what would have happened. U.S. troops would have stormed Japan's beaches and ports. So many died. It would have been a shit show. More on how many in a bit. May 28th, the target committee meets with Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tibbetts. The meeting reviews preparation for delivering atomic bombs, reviews the current status of conventional bombing in Japan. Tibbetts estimates that at the current pace, by January 1st, 1946, every major city in Japan will have been completely fucking destroyed by firebombs. We were literally prepared and planning to obliterate every single city, burn all of them to the ground. Uh, to be fair, Japan was also hoping to unleash, you know, uh, a literal plague on American soil and wipe out as many men, women, and children as possible. Both sides prepared to do whatever was needed to end this war. In June, or to win, I guess, rather. In June of 45, General Curtis, because if they were prepared to do whatever to end it, you know, Hirohito could have surrendered. But in June of 45, General Curtis LeMay estimates that the 20th Air Force will finish destroying the 60 most important cities in Japan long before January. Now they're saying they're going to be reduced these things or reduce these things to rubble by October 1st. On the 10th of June, the 509th Composite Group, uh, the crews arrive on Tinian Island with their modified B-29s, capable of carrying those big atomic payloads. Four days later, General Grove submits the target selections to General George Marshall, one of the authors of Operation Overlord, the Battle of Normandy, and one of the most decorated military leaders in American history. Two days later, on the 16th of June, the scientific panel of the interim committee reports that it sees no acceptable alternative to the use of the atomic bombs on Japan. They conclude that if Japan surrenders because of the blast, many less civilian and military personnel will die than in any alternative scenario. In early July, final preparations began at the New Mexico test site for the first atomic bomb test, codenamed Trinity. The date is set for July 16th. July 11th, the actual assembly of Gadget, the first atomic bomb, begins. This project, years in the making, has almost made it to the first real test. Tension is high. If this doesn't work, this entire project has been a complete waste of time and money for the war effort. Between July 12th and 13th, the plutonium core, the Gadget components leave Los Alamos for the test site separately. Assembly of Gadget begins at 1,300 hours on July 13th. Assembly of Gadget's explosive lens, uranium reflector, plutonium core completed at ground zero at 1,745 hours. The next day, Gadget is hoisted to the top of a 100-foot test tower. The detonators are installed, connected. Final test preparations begin. Meanwhile, little boy bomb units accompanied by the U-235 projectile are shipped out of San Francisco on the USS Indianapolis for Tinian Island. On the 16th of July, 5.29 a.m., as part of the Trinity test, Gadget is detonated near Alamogordo, New Mexico. It's the first atomic explosion in history, and it was bigger than expected. And that special steel tower, you know, that or steel, you know, contraption they meant to, to in case the bomb didn't work, to, to keep all the, 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 the uranium and everything contained, that thing that was custom built to contain the blast jumbo, <laughs> fucking eviscerated. It vaporizes it. 
You can find pictures of the mushroom cloud this blast created online. The blast was not only successful, it was more successful than anyone had imagined. Ralph Carlisle Smith, the assistant director of the Los Alamos facility, watching from a nearby hill, wrote of the blast, I was staring straight ahead with my open left eye covered by a welder's glass and my right eye remaining open and uncovered. Suddenly, my right eye was blinded by a light which appeared instantaneously all about without any buildup of intensity. My left eye could see the ball of fire start up like a tremendous bubble or knob-like mushroom. I dropped the glass from my left eye almost immediately and watched the light climb upward. The light intensity fell rapidly, hence did not blind my left eye, but it was still amazingly bright. It turned yellow, then red, and then a beautiful purple. At first, it had a translucent character, but shortly turned into a tinted or colored white smoke appearance. The ball of fire seemed to rise in something of a toadstool effect. Later, the column proceeded as a cylinder of white smoke. It seemed to move ponderously. A hole was punched through the clouds, but two fog rings appeared well above the white smoke column. There was a spontaneous cheer from the observers. Dr. Von Neumann said, that was at least 5,000 tons and probably a lot more. William Lawrence of the New York Times, who had been transferred to Los Alamos in early 45 by General Groves to document everything, wrote, a loud cry filled the air. The little groups that uh, previously had stood rooted to the earth like desert plants broke into dance, the rhythm of primitive men dancing at one of the fire festivals for the coming of spring. They did it. They actually fucking did it. The next day, July 17th, the Potsdam Conference of President Harry Truman, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin begins. The goals of the conference were to establish post-war order in Europe, peace treaty issues, counter the effects of the war, decide how to administer a defeated Germany. On July 19th, Oppenheimer suggests to General Groves that the U-235 from Little Boy be reworked into uranium-plutonium composite cores for making more implosion bombs. Four more implosion bombs could be made from Little Boy's pit. Groves rejects the idea since it would delay combat use. He feels that the bombs he'll be dropping are going to be powerful enough, and he'll be right. The very next day, the 509th Composite Group begins flying practice missions over Japan in preparation for the drops. On the 23rd of July, U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson in Potsdam for meetings between President Truman and Stalin receives the current target list. In order of choice, it is Hiroshima, Kokura, and Niigata. He also receives an estimate of atomic bomb availability. Yeah. A uh, little boy should be ready for use on August 6th. And uh, Nagasaki, not, not on that list. We'll, we'll see that in a second. And the second bomb called Fat Man is going to be ready uh, August 24th. Three more bombs will be available in September with more and more coming each month, reaching seven or more in December. And again with the names though, Fat Boy, not Lake of Fire, Dante's Inferno, not Eliminator, now Fat Boy. And also crazy that numerous additional atomic bombs are being lined up for more drops. On July 24th, President Truman discloses the existence of the atomic bomb to Stalin, who had known about it for a long time because of his spies, but he reportedly acts surprised, you know? Really? You have big scary bombs? I had no idea. You fat. I had no idea you had Fat Boy and Princess Party. Hey, wait a minute, Stalin. How'd you know that one of the names was Fat Boy? I never said that. Also, other one's not called Princess Party. That's a silly name for a very scary bomb. Oh, what kind of tough name you give it then? We're, we're calling it Skullfucker, okay? Is that tough enough for you? No, you're not. You call it Little Boy. I know everything. We have spies everywhere. My cousin been cutting your hair for two years now. Your dentist is my old piano teacher. I used to date your wife in high school. I know everything. Okay, also on July 24th, General Groves drafts the directive authorizing the use of atomic bombs as soon as the bomb is ready and weather permits. It's fucking full green light. All systems go. Now list the following targets in order of priority. Hiroshima, Kokura, Niigata, now Nagasaki. The directive constitutes final authorization for atomic attack. No further orders are needed. 
On July 26, President Truman issues the Potsdam Declaration, warning Japan of prompt and utter destruction. Uh, if it doesn't surrender, you know, unconditionally right now, this is Japan's last chance to save itself from atomic obliteration. The declaration demands a complete disarmament of Japan's military, get rid of Japan's army, occupation of certain areas of Japan by U.S. military, and Emperor Hirohito has to step the fuck off the throne. A responsible government needs to be set up in his place. Hirohito rejects the offer. Not a fan. Willing to sacrifice millions more of his own people to foolishly cling to his reign for a few more months. Japan now employs the strategy of Ketsugo. The strategy is based on trying to fight one last decisive battle intended to inflict so many casualties on a war-weary America that America will then relax its demands for unconditional surrender and negotiate a peace much more favorable to post-war Japan. One where the military doesn't have to disband, the U.S. doesn't get to build bases on its soil, and the emperor continues to be in charge. Also on the 26th, USS Indianapolis delivers little boy uh, bomb units and the U-235 projectile to Tinian Island. Five C-54 transport planes leave Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico with little boy U-235 target, its target, its final component, as well as the fat man's plutonium core and its initiator. All the pieces are going to be there. The assembly of Little Boy is completed on July 31st. It is ready for use as projected on the following day, August 1st. They have done it. It's all come together from all these places. Then on August 1st, a typhoon approaching Japan postpones the drop. Several days are required for the weather to clear. Only time in history people should have been thankful to be beaten around by a fucking typhoon. The second day of August, the Fat Man bomb case arrives in Tinian. The Fat Man assembly begins the bombing date set for August 11th. August 4th, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel Tibbetts briefs the 509th Composite Group about the impending attack. He reveals to his men they will be dropping immensely powerful bombs. He does not say exactly what their you know, nature is. Does not let them know they're atomic. On August 5th, Little Boy is loaded onto a B-59 Super Fortress bomber, ready to go. Zero hundred hours on August 6th, the final briefing occurs for the dropping of Little Boy. The target choice is Hiroshima. Hiroshima is a manufacturing center of some 350,000 people, roughly 500 miles from Tokyo. Lieutenant Colonel Tibbetts is the pilot. Robert Lewis is the co-pilot. The B-59 B-29 is named the Enola Gay after Tibbetts' mother. 245, Enola Gay begins takeoff roll. 730, the bomb is armed. 850, flying at 31,000 feet, Enola Gay crosses Shikoku-do east of Hiroshima. Bombing conditions are good. The aim point, easily visible. No opposition is encountered. At 915 and 17 seconds, Little Boy is released at 31,060 feet. 45 seconds later, it kills more people than any other single weapon by far in the history of the world. Little Boy explodes at an altitude of 1,850 feet, 550 feet from the aim point, the AOE bridge, with the yield of 12.5 to 18 kilotons of TNT. The explosion wipes out 90% of the city's structures, 90%, and immediately kills 80,000 people, roughly 80,000 people, roughly 50,000 more will die in just the next few days from massive levels of radiation and, or they'll die, you know, due to burns. People in the initial blast radius crushed in their homes, in the buildings in which they were working, their skeletons would be seen in debris and ashes for almost 1,500 meters around the center of the blast. Large numbers of the population walked for considerable distance after the detonation before collapsing and dying in the road. More people developed vomiting bloody and watery diarrhea associated with extreme weakness, you know, dying in the first and second weeks after the bomb is dropped. Deaths from internal injuries and from burns are common. Either the heat from the fires, or infrared radiation from the detonations causes burns 
uh, or causing burns, uh, you know, burns many people badly, leaving them vulnerable to horrible infections. After a low without peak mortality from any special causes, deaths began to occur from purpura, often associated with epilepsy or epilation, uh, anemia, a yellowish coloration of the skin, so-called bone marrow syndrome manifested by a low white blood cell count, almost complete absence of platelets necessary to prevent bleeding, probably at its maximum mortality level between the fourth and sixth weeks after the bombs dropped. So man, just death, death, death. Hirohito, given another chance to surrender after the bomb is dropped, he again refuses. This is fucking madness. Dude, you lost. They're obliterating your country. Wave the white flag. The next day, August 7th, in the absence of an immediate surrender, a crash effort begins to print and distribute millions of leaflets to major Japanese cities, warning of future atomic attacks. This is going to happen to you too. Also, the date for dropping Fat Man is moved up to August 10th, uh, then to August 9th to avoid projected bad weather. On August 8th, the Japanese ambassador to the Soviet Union tries to persuade the Soviets to mediate a surrender, uh, you know, more favorable surrender negotiations. Soviet Foreign Minister uh, Molotov cancels the meeting, then having never declared war against Japan this entire time, announces that the Soviet Union is now at war with Japan. No one is on Japan's side anymore. They just need to surrender, but they still refuse. At 2,200 hours on the 8th, Fat Man is loaded onto a B-29 called Box Car, named after its original pilot, pilot Captain Frederick C. Bach. Box Car is now on permanent display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force, Dayton, Ohio, next to a replica of Fat Man. August 9th, 347. Boxcar takes off from Tinian. The target of choice is the Kokura Arsenal, not Nagasaki. Nagasaki was never the primary target. Major Charles Sweeney is its pilot. First Lieutenant Charles Donald Albury is its co-pilot. Soon after takeoff, Sweeney discovers that the fuel system will not pump from the 600-gallon reserve tank. At 10.44, Boxcar arrives at Kokura but finds it covered by haze. The aim point cannot be seen. Flak and fighters appear, forcing the plane to stop searching for it. Sweeney towards, uh, turns towards Nagasaki, the only secondary target in range. Didn't know this before this sucked. Nagasaki, man, not supposed to be bombed that day. All the people about to die died because of an unexpected run-in with some Japanese fighter planes and some fuel problems. Had that not happened, all of those people would have lived. Others in Kakura would have died. Upon arriving at Nagasaki, Boxcar has enough fuel for only one pass over the city, even with an emergency landing in Okinawa. Nagasaki is covered with clouds, but one gap allows a drop several miles from the intended aim point. At 11.02 Nagasaki time, Fat Man explodes at 1,950 feet near the perimeter of this coastal city of roughly 250,000 people, scoring a direct hit on the Mitsubishi Steel and Armworks. Yield is 19 to 23 kilotons. Estimated death toll for the second attack, 75,000 people, almost all civilians. The next day, August 10th, incredibly, Japanese military leaders still haven't surrendered. Emperor Hirohito demands that surrender be accepted, provided, of course, that he allows, that he's allowed to retain his position as emperor. General Groves reports that the second plutonium corps will be ready for shipment on August 12th or 13th. Another bombing run possible on August 17th or 18th. President Truman uh, orders a halt to further atomic bombing until more orders are issued. The next day, President Truman and Secretary of State Burns reply with an amended form of the Potsdam Decree that acknowledges the emperor, but refuses to guarantee his position. You know, just, yeah, sure, Hirohito, we'll fucking think about it. But in case you somehow missed the fact that we just fucking nuked two of your cities into oblivion, and you were obviously capable, uh, you know, and we're obviously capable of leveling the rest of your country, you're not exactly in a prime position to, to, to negotiate. The next day, President Truman, excuse me, orders that an area firebombing be res, you know, resumed. Incredibly, Japan not done being bombed yet. 
I didn't know that either. There was more bombing uh, on, the, on the 14th. Over 1,000 bombers hit the Japanese mainland, the largest raid in the Pacific theater. Part of the raid involved 315 bombardment wing flying, uh, a, a provide, involved the 315 bombardment wing flying 3,800 miles to destroy the Nippon Oil Company refinery, the longest bombing raid of the war. The refinery produced 67% of the nation's oil. The mission was a success, completely destroyed the refinery surrounding ports. Also on the 14th, following uh, leaflet bombing of Tokyo with surrender terms, Hirohito finally surrenders. At 2.49 local time, p.m., Japanese news agencies announced the surrender. A few more aerial raids would still take place over the next hour or so. Pilots didn't get the message yet that the war was over. A 19-year-old kid named Phil Schlomberg would be the last U.S. military man to die in combat in World War II. Captain Jerry Yellen. An American fighter pilot had been ordered on the 13th to fly on a combat mission on the 14th over the Japanese city of Nagoya, where his 16-plane squadron would strike targets from the air. As his military unit was briefed on his assignment, Yellen's wingman, a 19-year-old named Phil Schlomberg, leaned over and told Yellen he had an inexplicable feeling he was going to die. If we go on this mission, I'm not coming back, Yellen recalled his friend saying decades later. Despite those doubts, no matter how close to the end of the war, uh, how close the end of the war seemed, Schlomberg refused to abandon the mission packed his clothes, paid his debts, wrote to his family. Yellen told Schlomberg to fly alongside the wing of his P-51 Mustang fighter plane. He gave Schlomberg a thumbs up. Schlomberg returned the gesture, gesture, then he entered the clouds. Eight hours later, Yellen landed back on Iwo Jima, exited his cockpit, and he learned he had just flown the final combat mission of World War II. The surrender had been announced three hours before the planes would descend over Japanese land and begin striking targets, but word never reached them. They listened for the code word of Utah to abort the mission, but the command never came. Yellen saw Schlomberg's plane disappear into a cloud bank, and then he was never seen again. No radio call, no visual fire, no sighting of Japanese planes. And again, war is hell, but at least this one was finally over. The Manhattan Project had brought the war to a close and also kicked off a new war, the Cold War. On the 2nd of September, Japanese officials signed the formal Japanese instrument of surrender on board the USS Missouri. On October 16th, Oppenheimer resigns as director of the Los Alamos Laboratory, accepting a post at Caltech. The next day on the 17th, Norris Bradbury takes over as director for the Los Alamos Laboratory. The Manhattan Project may have ended, but, you know, the nuclear weapons development has just begun. On January 24th, 1946, United Nations Atomic Energy Commission has been established. On August 1st, 1946, President Truman signs the Atomic, Atomic Energy Act. This establishes the atomic, atom, fuck, the Atomic Energy Commission, which assumes responsibility for all Manhattan engineering district properties. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, now let's talk a little bit about the new world we live in. A uh, nuclear world, you know, that began with the Manhattan Project, before we talk about the morality of dropping those two atomic bombs. Oppenheimer warned President Truman after a fat man and a little boy were dropped that soon many other countries would also have these weapons, and he was right. Since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, eight sovereign states have publicly announced the successful detonations of nuclear weapons. Five of these nations are considered to be, you know, nuclear weapon states under the terms of the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. In order of acquisition, these are, of course, the U.S., then Russia, then the United Kingdom, France, and then China. Since the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1970, when basically the countries I just mentioned told the rest of the world, hey, guys, nobody else gets to have nukes, okay? Ha! 
we're not done, you know, giving up ours because, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't want to. But the rest of you fuckers don't get any because we don't trust you to be smart enough to not build the world up. Okay, you fucking dummies. Is that cool? Is that cool if we ask the rest of the world to sit at the kiddies table when it comes to nukes? Nukes? No? Well, you don't like it. You know, fucking suck our dicks. We have it and you don't. So take that. That wasn't the tone of this treaty. Not exactly. But it was the basic message. And not surprisingly, other nations, you know, have went on to develop their own nukes with an attitude of like, hey, we didn't, no, we didn't sign that treaty, dicks. And if you'll recall, you know, none of you guys are our moms. So you don't get to tell us what to do. Uh, these, the states, the three states that were not parties to that treaty that have conducted overt nuclear, t- uh, ah, fucking, fuck it. Overt, uh, overt nuclear tests are namely India, Pakistan, and North Korea. North Korea had been a party to the non-proliferation treaty, but then withdrew in 2003. And uh, there may be a ninth nuclear nation, Israel. They don't officially acknowledge it, but they're thought to have somewhere between 75 and 40 nukes. States that have uh, formerly possess, possessed, you know, nukes are South Africa, who developed uh, some nukes, but then disassembled their arsenal before joining the non-proliferation treaty and the former Soviet Union republics of Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. There have been whisperings over the years that Iran has nukes, or at least has been trying to develop them, but no proof. Most intelligence analysts, at least publicly, don't seem to think they have them. More than 90% of the world's 13,865 nukes, according to one estimate, are owned by Russia and the U.S. as of early 2019. According to several sources, Russia has 6,490 bombs. U.S. has 6,185 bombs. The remainder being estimates that France has 300, China 290, the U.K. with 200, Pakistan with 160, India with 140, Israel with who knows how many, and North Korea an estimated 30 bombs. Other estimates have the total number of nuclear warheads worldwide to be over 20,000, enough to completely obliterate the earth. And not just in a nuclear fallout permanent winter kind of way, in, in, in a, you know, in an every single urban area on earth has been utterly fucking obliterated kind of way. More than 2,000 nukes, uh, you know, explosions have occurred since the mid 40s. These numbers are approximate. Some test results have been disputed, but the U.S. alone has had over 1,000 tests by official count. 219 atmospheric atmospheric tests as defined by the comprehensive, you know, nuclear test ban treaty of 1996. The explosive power of nukes has, you know, dramatically increased also in recent years. We'll touch on that in a moment. Uh, First, let's look at the scientific benefits of the Manhattan Project. I'm not going to push that button anymore. I'm sick of it. I'm just going to say whatever fucking word I want to say that sounds like nuclear. I'm going to pronounce it like that the rest of my fucking life. So suck it. Uh... Uh, but yeah, not all bad uh, news is bad when it comes to uh, nuclear energy. We learned that back in the Chernobyl suck. A whole bunch of different groups, uh, you know, or different groundbreaking state-of-the-art technologies have come from the making of those first two atomic bombs. Obviously, one of the main benefits is nuclear power. Nuclear power. It has had its ups and downs, but there is no question that the technology of nuclear power is amazing, as we talked about in the Chernobyl suck. You know, it's the current leading answer to environmental worries about carbon, since nuclear power doesn't produce greenhouse gases while still producing more than enough reliable power for modern society to thrive. And since solar and wind and water-generated power systems just don't give us enough juice to power all our goodies, it's what we need right now. Uh, There is, of course, the threat of a nuclear meltdown, another uh, Fukushima or Chernobyl, but modern plants, you know, we think have learned from the mistakes of other plants, other other meltdowns, and the meltdowns, meltdowns haven't been as catastrophic as some have made them out to be. You know, Chernobyl melted down in 1986, not that long ago, and there's now more wildlife living in the woods around that plant than there was before the meltdown. And they're not mutants. As we learned a while back, they're not running around with three heads and, you know, six eyes. No spider rabbit combos or anything insane. Fish in ponds and waterways in the disaster zone, you know, not riddled with tumors. Not trying to make light of it, but, you know, it's also just not true. 
to think that if there was another reactor meltdown, a, a portion of the world is just going to look like the walking dead for thousands of years. There's also this to consider when weighing the positives and negatives of, you know, nuke power. Well, we each, you know, use on average 2.5 gallons of crude oil per day, which is about 22 barrels of oil a year, about 1,760 barrels in an 80-year lifetime. The amount of nuclear waste generated per person fits into one Coke can. Uh, beyond energy, the splitting of the atom has led to many other advancements, such as with medical technology, from medical imaging to diagnos- diagnosis and treatments, including some kinds of cancer, even stem cell research. Nuclear technology makes it possible. Also, nuclear chemistry and physics has come a long way, and the students of these fields today owe a lot to those wizards of the 30s and 40s. All right, so to sum it up, Hitler scientists messed around with the idea of splitting the atom, using the enemies, you know, uh, using this incredible amount of you know, energy to help the Nazis take over the world. And that sparked the greatest conspiracy in American history, if not in world history. Hundreds of thousands of people, including almost every egghead that could operate a calculator, were brought on to make sure Hitler wasn't the first to get that technology. Then Hitler killed himself before the Manhattan Project reached his goal or escaped into the hollow earth or made it to the moon where he lives as some kind of Nazi reptilian hybrid. So many conspiracies. Uh, and after Hitler died, we continued to develop and then drop the big bombs. And people have questioned the morality of that decision ever since. So was it justified to do that? I feel like that's the big question with the Manhattan Project. Well, I can't say with certainty. You know, it depends on how you view what's okay to do in war. If you take the position that you're fighting an enemy who doesn't care about killing your civilians and is aggressively trying to develop biological weapons, that if successful could kill millions and millions of your people, and you know that killing a few hundred thousand of that nation's citizens will put an end to fighting that otherwise will continue for months and lead to more overall death, then yeah, Viewed from that lens, it is absolutely justified. However, if you believe that you should not base your military actions on what your enemy is willing to do or is trying to do, and that specifically targeting civilians or at least not caring at all about collateral damage is never justified, well, then of course, it was not justified. Now, if you are of the mindset that it was not justified for sure, hear these numbers and see if you rethink your position. There was a study done for Secretary of War Henry Stimson's staff by William Shockley, and it estimated that invading Japan an operation downfall, that scenario we talked about earlier, would have led to 1.7 to 4 million American casualties, including 400 to 800,000 fatalities. And maybe even more importantly for the morality argument, it would have led to 5 to 10 million Japanese fatalities, the majority of those being civilian casualties. 5 to 10 million, you know, Japanese civilians dead. All, all of that, you know, versus what happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, what if you truly believed those were the only two possible outcomes, which very well may have been true, by the way? Then what do you do? Do you drop the bombs and kill roughly 200,000 Japanese? Or do you not drop the bombs and very, very likely kill four to eight million Japanese and also 400 to 800,000 American soldiers? In that situation, I think it's pretty clear that you drop the bombs. Reflecting on the decision to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki months after the bombing, the man in charge of it all, Leslie Groves, you know, then he said, we will be misguided in our intentions if we point at one single thing and say that it will prevent war. Unless, of course, that thing happens to be the will, the determination, and the resolve of people everywhere that nations will never again clash on the battlefield. And I interpret him, you know, that is him saying, yeah. It was terrible what we happened or what happened because war is fucking terrible. If you don't want terrible things like atomic bombs being dropped on cities, then don't have war. You know, work hard to prevent war. Uh, Oppenheimer, 
you know, after, after it all over, uh, he, he strongly opposed further, you know, continued kind of nuclear development. After the war, he took steps to prevent the continued construction of more and more powerful bombs. You know, he, he began working with the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission to control the use of nuclear weapons. In 1949, when Truman approached the commission about creating a hydrogen bomb, Oppenheimer refused. And then he lost his job due to refusing. He was labeled a communist sympathizer via McCarthyism and was blacklisted from other similar scientific work. And his career never recovered. He was persecuted for his opposition to continued nuclear advances in weaponry until his death in 1967. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, this is quite the conspiracy. So many people had to keep quiet about this super expensive, impossible endeavor to be accomplished, and they did. I must admit, this does add some credence to conspiracy theorist claims about the government's ability to hide a huge operation. I don't think they're hiding reptilians, you know, but I guess in theory, they could maybe also pull that off, maybe. Number two, Robert Oppenheimer. Robert Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves were the two major minds behind the bomb. Both were geniuses in their fields, Oppenheimer in theoretical physics and Groves in the organization of people and resources. Number three, the Uranium Committee were the brains behind the Manhattan Project. Most of the decisions were made by this group of super nerds who bought, or who both brought the world to the brink of destruction and also accomplished the impossible. Number four, nuclear technology has brought us a myriad of new technologies that makes our world better. Key among them is nuclear power. There is nothing like it with zero carbon emissions, increased safety, at least in new plants, better waste disposal and recycling methods, and an unprecedented amount of energy creation. It may be part of the answer to our planet's desire to end burning fossil fuels. And number five, new info. Atomic secrets stolen from the Nazis may have helped bring the Manhattan Project to completion. Early in the war, the concern that the Germans would build the atomic bomb before the Americans was real. In 1938, German scientists discovered nuclear fission. The Germans had even organized a special scientific unit headed by quantum physicist Werner Karl Heisenberg to develop an atomic weapon, amassing stockpiles of uranium. To learn just how far the Germans were, the Americans organized a covert special ops unit in 1943, tasked with discovering Nazi nuclear secrets and capturing their top scientists. Codenamed uh, Alsos Mission, nicknamed Lightning A, the unit consisted of a small force of scientists and counterintelligence troops headed by Colonel Boris T. Pash, a counterintelligence officer who had run security for America's own nuclear weapons efforts, the Manhattan Project. Pash had uncovered a ring of communist spies trying to steal U.S. nuclear secrets. Working ahead of advancing Allied armies, Lightning A scoured the countryside looking for Nazi labs. In a cave, an actual cave, not far from Heigerloch, Colonel Pash found the prize, a Nazi nuclear laboratory complete with a test reactor. The Americans began dismantling the next day and then destroyed the site. Then on April 24th, Pash's team made another major find. A textile mill and surrounding buildings had been converted into a laboratory for German nuclear research efforts. They rounded up 25 scientists, through interrogations, they learned the German research files had not been destroyed, as the scientists initially claimed, but were sealed inside a watertight drum they had sunk into a cesspool. cesspool. They then retrieved those files, and who knows how much that info helped American scientists complete building their bombs as fast as they did. Thanks, Hitler. Before America beat you, you may have helped America beat the Japanese and end the war for everybody. Time suck. Top five takeaways. That's it. The Manhattan Project has been sucked. And now it will probably be a while before, you know, I ever hit this button again. Nuclear. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the queen of the suck, Lindsay Cummins. High Priestess, Harmony Velikamp, Reverend Dr. Joe, 
H.C. Paisley. Thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. Thanks to you, listener, for letting us keep doing this week after week. Thanks also to Access Apparel. Big thanks to the script keeper. And, uh, and if you want to meet more time suckers, want to meet more of the cult of the curious, get out there and join the private Facebook group. For more social interaction than that, use the app to link over to the Time Suck Discord group. Link for both in the episode description. Next week, in honor of Veterans Day, the world's most lethal sniper, Finland's white death, Simo Heia, or Heiha. Yeah, Simo Heiha. Oh, it's going to be another fun word week. Why can't all sucks just have people named Bob in them? I have so much respect, not just for America's veterans, but for meat sacks worldwide who have put their lives on the line to defend their homelands, fighting Russians, trying to invade Finland. This dude took down a record 542 sniper kills without the aid of a scope, plus may have managed to gun down several hundred more enemies with a submachine gun to round out his kill count to about 800. And this all happened in just months roughly a hundred days. And he was humble as shit about it. And he lived a long life afterwards. We look at a military hero, a guy who really, really helped his country in a, you know, in a time of need next week before dipping back into some true crime. I'm excited. It's been a while. feels like it's been forever since we've done some true crime. I'm going to do that uh, for a few weeks after that. And right now we're going to dig into today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Time sucker Colin Evans asked a great question that I thought was very relevant to today's suck. Colin wrote, Dear Master Sucker of too many titles and names to remember. Huge fan, by the way. I've been listening to you since I was 14. I'm 25 now, so thank you for the literal years of laughter. Now to my point. I was listening to a true crime episode. I don't remember which one right offhand. Either John JonBenet Ramsey or The Confession Killers. When you stated that you hated all serial killers. I believe that you hate all serial killers to this point in life. However, what if somebody was a serial murderer exclusively to pedophiles and rapists. I thought of this as I was on a 20-hour drive. And at first I agreed with you. Then I thought, then that thought brought a smile to my face. So what are your thoughts on this? Dude, that's a great question, Colin. I mean, you're right. You know what? You're right. If Dexter was real, for example, then I wouldn't hate all, all serial killers. Uh, I brought up the nature of evil earlier in black and white thinking. And I think it's easy to say stuff like, oh, you know, all serial killers are terrible. All serial killing is bad. But with the right hypothetical situation, you know, hypothetical, then it, you know, that wouldn't be true. If someone went around killing only level three sex offenders with multiple convictions under their belts, people we know are guilty based on numerous convictions for heinous crimes, the worst of the worst, would I look down on somebody killing them? Fuck no. I would see that person as a true hero. So yeah, so I guess I'm open to really being a huge fan, truly, of a serial killer. Thanks for making me think about that in a different way. Glad you're still along for the laugh ride all these years after finding me. A uh, quick shout-out request from awesome sucker Cliff, who sent an email to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com with the subject title of Amazon higher up aging rapidly and possessed by clowns. <laughs> Cliff writes, Dear Dan Sucker, come and suck in the suck, master suck. <laughs> the subject line isn't too far from the truth. I'll be brief. My brother Adam is an avid listener and juggalo. The successful kind, very anti-heroin. I'm pretty sure that listening to Time Suck and Scared to Death are the only things keeping him from swerving into a bridge embankment on his drive to and from work at Amazon.com. His birthday is on November 6th, and I know he'd fill the back of his pants with joy if you could show him some love. Your team is amazing. We love you. Keep the knowledge vortex sucking, Cliff. Well, hail Nimrod, Cliff, and fucking happy birthday, Adam. Don't drive into a bridge embankment. And I hope you, I hope you do fill the back of your pants with joy. Send us a pic of what that looks like. Does it look like regular poop, or is it like way different? Put some, put some showbiz in your drawers. Uh, heavy and important message now. 
Coming in from Time Sucker Chris. I'll leave Chris's last name out of this. Chris wrote in saying, Hey, Dan and Time Suck team. I want to start by apologizing for the heavy nature of this email, but I felt like I needed to share this with you. A few months back, I was at work and received an electric shock. As a result, I lost 20% of the strength in the right side of my body and was told I had the cognitive function of an 80-year-old. I just turned 30. Over the last three months, I have worked so hard to get back to where I was prior to the injury. For the most part, I have recovered really well. I still struggle with fatigue and at times brain fog, but there has been a lot of progress. Three weeks ago, I had my first shift back at work. And when I walked through the door for the first time in three months, I was greeted with a cold shoulder. None of the people I counted on as friends would even speak to me. I thought they must have just been under the the pump as is normal this time of year. But as the day went on, the mocking and insults started. Normally, I have pretty thick skin. But for the last three weeks while at work, I've been subjected to the same thing day after day. Yesterday, I I finally had, had it. After three months of constantly feeling like shit from a workplace injury, coming back to be treated like garbage, I broke down. I decided that I was going to get into my car, drive into the woods, and quietly kill myself. I started my car, started driving. My phone connected to the audio in my car, and your suck on the Church of Satan came on. For the first time in two months, I smiled. That smile turned to laughter, and that laughter turned to the first happy tears I had shed since my wedding day. I don't know if you will ever see this email, but when I was down and out, you guys lifted me back up, so thank you. As I said before, sorry for the heavy nature, but I will always be in your debt for literally saving my life. Well, holy shit, Chris. I would have never expected that a, that a suck on the Church of Satan of all topics would have that effect or that the Calliope music would have that effect. But maybe, maybe it makes people really happy. I'm glad. I'm glad that this terrible, <laughs> terrible music could lift your spirits. Let's get, let's get cotton candy out of here to cheer Chris up. In all seriousness, obviously saw this message. So glad you sent it. So glad you're doing better, man. Fuck your coworkers. I hope you use the strength that you're gaining through working on your recovery. Keep working on it like you're working on Push past these fucking ass clowns. Find a better job working with people who aren't dick fucks. You sound like a really good dude. Nothing to be sorry about in your email at all. You sound like, you know, deep down you're sensitive like I am. And the world needs more sensitive people. I really believe that. People who are sensitive and not just rude, heartless fucks. There's already too many of those people out there. So keep on sucking, Chris, for real. Don't let those assholes take a good dude down. Cult of the Curious loves you. Hail fucking Nimrod. And finally, a message from Time Sucker Aaron B. that just made me laugh. I love how some listeners are, are conservative Mormons who really don't curse past, oh my heck. And I love how others are as foul-mouthed as myself. Team Meadsack, man. A lot of diversity. Every color, every type of gender configuration, LGBTQ, conservative, liberal. Just a big island. The best misfit toys. Everyone but mean-spirited, aggressively ignorant assholes welcome. Here's Aaron's message. Aaron wrote, I love that the message you read in the Time Sucker update sometimes began with, hey, fucker, or what's up, shitbag, or yo, asshole. This is, a pl- <laughs> this is a place I can truly feel at home with my awful mouth, which only seems to compound its awfulness after 17 years of being in the tattoo industry. We have free lips if you catch my drift. Just wanted to drop a line and let you know how much I enjoy the podcast. I found Time Suck after I read a recommendation on Reddit. Cool. After Googling funny history podcasts, and wow, this is nothing fucking like a funny history podcast at all. God damn it. Good job to you and all your staff. The high priestess, queen of the suck, Reverend What's-His-Face, <laughs> script keep away from you, dude. Bojangles and Nimrod. Lucifina can suck my non-existent left testicle for interfering in my goddamn life for so long. It's been a challenging year for me and my family as our oldest son has been recently diagnosed with a verifiable mental health disorder. We give him love, support, and treatment, but that doesn't make unfortunate interruptions any easier to deal with. Both my husband and I have missed work, lost money, had to pick the kid up from school and care facilities, daily come face-to-face with our own inadequacies as human beings, try to build a balanced life with our daughter, 
and are learning every day about what it means to be intelligent, effective parents that are trying their best to give a challenging child the best future he can have. Thank you for giving me something well thought and interesting to listen to in my off time. Maybe someday I can share your collective wisdom with both my kids, but until then, I have to listen when they're away. My fucking garbage ass mouth is bad enough as it is, and I don't need yours thrown in the mix. That's fair. It's the little things in life I think we cling to the most. And thanks to every one of you asshats, I have a little more to look forward to every day. I'm a bona fide space lizard now. I love that part of my support goes to such awesome charities. Also, I like to knit. And after finally admitting I can't watch TV and knit at the same time, I realized I can at least listen to some shit. And like my fingers, uh, you know, to noodle some sweet, sweet yarn to the sound of your voice. Perhaps someday I may knit the pattern for the Cthulhu cock sock I <laughs> I have hiding in my stash while listening to you ramble about some godforsaken thing or another. Keep up the good work. Thanks for not making me feel like I want to jump off a goddamn bridge. Hail Nimrod. Hail good boy Bojangles. Hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you. Love you, Aaron. I'm fucking, you really made me laugh with that email. Sometimes I need, I need the laughter as well. Uh, my favorite line, thanks to every one of you asshats. I have a little more forward, to, or a little more to look forward to every day. So glad Time Suck is a place where you can be yourself. You know, unwind, feel like you're learning something. You know, feel like you're you're listening to someone who's not going to judge you for how you talk because, you know, I I won't. I mean, it'd be ridiculous for me to judge anybody for that. Sorry to hear you're having some family challenges, but it sounds like you're a kick-ass fucking parent who's rising to the occasion. And I'm going to put this music on for the end just because I love it. Keep doing your best to raise your kids as best you can. Keep knitting. Keep tattooing. Keep swearing. And keep on fucking sucking. <laughs> Hail Lucifina. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for today, Meat Sacks. Don't get firebombed or moved. It sounds really terrible. I'll just see you this weekend and keep on sucking. <laughs> your dentist is my old piano teacher. I used to date your wife in high school. I know everything. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.